listening to The Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema with Big Willie and the Samurai, bringing class to trash since 1977. Gentlemen's Guide to Midnight Cinema back on the air for another beautiful week of recording. Back on the scene, yes. crispy and clean. Nice, crispy and clean. <laughs> Is there any, you know, it's funny when I think crispy, I don't think clean, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> That'll work. <laughs> All right, so we are back with another episode for our Ladies Appreciation Week. Uh, this week we are covering Night Nurse from uh, Alyssa. Uh, over at the Big Red Podcast, and we are covering uh, The Wicker Man for Christine over at uh, Paracinema, at Paracinema.net. So uh, we're going to keep the intro very short uh, again because we have massive, uh, what's that word you say? Massive. Yes, massive feedback again this week, probably another hour of it. So uh, I think we should just go ahead and uh, go to break, like, like right now. I mean, this will be the shortest intro in the history of the GGTMC, but why not? We could get started on some film review. Let's do it. All right. We will return after this. Want to tell the world about that crappy big budget flick? Or get people to buy that barely noticed book or CD that rocked your world? Can't quit talking about pop culture? Then become a blogger at one of the fastest growing review sites online. PopSyndicate.com is searching for people who want to blog about movies, DVDs, books, comics, anime, music, TV shows, and more. Check it all out at PopSyndicate.com and email the editor for details. PopSyndicate.com, your virtual pit stop for all things pop culture. So I'm calling for, I guess, um, Women's Appreciation Month or something like that. So I was thinking, um, what's good? You know, I think genre, I'll be honest, I like a lot of genre movies, but despite the occasional appearance of, like, some badass lady showing up, there's just not great representation. But you know where there is good representation for women, like strong women parts? Noir. And I think uh, noir is one of those things people are like, yeah, I like noir, but then they probably haven't actually seen a lot of noir. So I'm going to tell you who I love, who one of my favorite uh, noir badass ladies is, Barbara Stanwyck. Yes, Miss Barbara Stanwyck, because um, she's awesome, and she can be a tyrant, and she can just be dangerous, but she can be cool, and she can be menacing. She can be all these great things that you want. So um, if you want to see her like a little more... Not so badass, like not, she's she's not playing like uh, the tough gal in this one. 
she's more, she, it's probably her straightest role, I guess I would say, um, Night Nurse from uh, 1931. And I got familiar with that movie because it was on like um, a pre-code band list and it was really impossible to find on DVD and it got released only a few years ago. And it's really good and it's surprisingly dark. I'm a big fan. Okay, keep up the good work, boys. Bye. All right, so you just heard from Melissa and what she decided to select for our listeners' con- or ladies' appreciation month, I should say. So she chose Night Nurse from 1931, which is easily the oldest film we've ever covered on the show. Uh, yeah, we thought um, uh, Violent Midnight was old, and that was, I think, the beginning of the 60s, wasn't it? Yes, yes. It's yes, got so, 30 years on that. Yes, this is like at the beginning of, oh, we heard a little ting there from the glass, almost like a <laughs> uh, like a radio cue. <laughs> You're on the air. <laughs> doom, 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 doom. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, she chose this. Uh, this is like right at the beginning of the talkies, basically, 1931. I mean, this is old. I mean, so uh, that doesn't mean a bad thing, though. So I'll kick it over to you and uh, let you synopsize, and then uh, I'll get going on the review here. Okay. Uh, in short, a nurse enlists the help of a petty criminal to foil a sinister plot to murder two children. Yes, that is the very short and basic uh, plot synopsis to Night Nurse. Uh Let's, uh, I'll talk about it a little bit. Now, she mentioned this on in her voicemail that this is a pre-code film. Uh, what that means, basically, is the Hayes Code. The Hayes Code came around because, you know, Hollywood uh, started pushing the boundaries of uh, what you could do in cinema. Uh, basically, there was some nudity. There was some, uh, well, there was content that was considered unbecoming, uh, such as alcohol consumption. Drugs. Uh, drugs, yes. Nudity. Uh Criminality, criminal nature, yes, or, or yes. moral ambiguity. Yes, and uh, of course, a lot of sex, uh, things like that. Nothing, you know, nothing, not even nearly not anything uh, sexual-wise that you see nowadays. But uh, still, for the time period, it was still pretty racy. And uh, you know, the Hays Code came along. Now, the interesting thing about the Hays Code was is that they came along and they made all these rules. But then Hollywood decided to basically ignore them for about, you know, I think about eight to ten years. They decided, you know what, you got these rules and stuff, but screw you, we're going to do what we want to do anyway. Because nobody was really being very hardcore about it. And then they got a new man in control, and he got real hardcore about it. And then you get from, uh, you know, the late 30s on into the probably 60s, I think, until you start seeing some some of that behavior again when cinema changed. Which, I guess, you know, in the history of cinema, that's not a bad thing. I do kind of wish that the code would have been ignored for another 30 years or so, so we just could have seen what kind of films we would have got. But people were trying to push the boundaries, and there's some in there that pushed it and stuff. So that's the way we'll just look at it. Uh, but, yeah, the Hays Code came along, and this is one of the pre-code films from Hollywood. So very interesting to see this. I, I do want to just interject because I did want to touch on the Hays Code and everything. And I do uh, – one of the notes I mentioned was I think it's a real shame that – this comes down to nothing more than sort of moral policing or, you know, the yes. people sort of enforcing their conservative views. Now, I mean, where does it end? You could certainly argue that. But I do think that it's a shame that we didn't get to see – there's 30 years of, of basically dead air in terms of what people could push. Now, some people creatively push some things in some more subversive ways, but I think it's a shame we didn't get to see uh, more of this or the gradual progression uh, – in terms of themes and, and whatnot, um, win those 30 years. Because we lost 30 years of, of uh, progressive filmmaking as a result. Yes, yes. That's and the I, one I, bad thing about any kind of rule book is that you lose you lose uh, progression. That's what you lose. And that's the thing. When you look at old Japanese and European cinema of the time, 
uh, more 50s and stuff. It just seems so far ahead of its time, especially in the context of comparing it to American film of the time. You see blood, you see breasts, you see this, you that. I'm not saying that's what makes a good film, but you see a lot more of the things that we tend to think of just to, to generalize in a nutshell. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it is a shame, and I just wanted to mention that. Yes. So that's uh, just talk about the Hays Code a little bit and then, you know, basically what happened here. So you get Night Nurse, which is basically a very simple story of, you know, a nurse uh, played by Barbara Stanwyck uh, who kind of enters in and she actually gets teamed up with another nurse played by Joan Blondell. Now, every time I see Joan Blondell, I can't remember ever not thinking about her. Uh, She was the blonde older waitress in the original Grease film, which is if people know me. Uh, they know I love Grease and stuff. So every time I see Joan Blondell, I always think of Grease, even though you know then she was an older lady. But it, she was a very attractive uh, blonde uh, woman back in the day. Uh, very attractive there back in 1931. She was really hot, actually. And, you know, I don't generally find – this is going to sound bizarre. I don't know. Maybe you, you agree with this. Whenever I'd see pictures, for the most part, of women from this era, I don't generally find them that attractive. But I thought she was very attractive. Yes. Yes, and I also um, don't find gum chewing that attractive, but uh, I found this very attractive when she was chewing gum, kind of oh, playful. Yes, she, <laughs> she was. You know, she's interesting. Again, since we're talking about her, uh, she has a pretty interesting biography. She did The Cincinnati Kid. Yes, I remember her in that. Mr. McQueen. Uh, she did a film that I only, the name sounded interesting, Ride Beyond Vengeance, which I believe is a uh, Western. Hmm. Uh, got Chuck Connors in it. Uh, Bill Bixby. Nice. So I've never seen it, but that one kind of grabbed me just strictly on title. But then later on in her career, she did a few things that were pretty interesting. Like you said, there was Grease. Um, there's a film I've been meaning to see that's never been on DVD. It's called The Glove, uh, a.k.a. Lethal Terminator. <laughs> and it's got John Saxon, Rosie Greer, her, Aldo Ray, um, <laughs> sort of a bounty hunter uh, type film. And it's just – it's uh, – it looks quite delicious, and I've been needing to track it down for quite some time. And she did this when she was in her 70s, so yes. she still had some gumption even at that age to do sort of the uh, <laughs> sort of trashy stuff. Yes. Uh, I have not seen that film. Uh, I think Matt Suzaka might have wrote a review of that over on the, the Paracinema blog, so go over there and look. I think he might have wrote a review of that, actually. So If he does, we need to talk. Yes, yes. Uh, yeah, so... You know, you get these two uh, characters basically get together and they're going to work in this little hospital and stuff and, and some more of the story progresses. But, you know, again, we don't really talk about story much on the show. We kind of talk about film as a whole as the, you know, technique and thing because that's what we're real big fans of. And so I'll get into that. You know, when you're introduced to Barbara Stanwyck's character in this film, you're introduced to her in soft focus. Now, this was something that Hollywood did a lot from the 30s into the 50s, well into the 50s, is that they would introduce their lead actors and their lead uh, female actors especially in soft focus because, you know, it kind of... It kind of takes the age away and and things like that. And really shows the the beauty. Now Barbara Stanwyck is uh, she's an acquired taste. She's not the most beautiful woman uh, ever to grace the screen, but she did play uh, very good looking, tough women very well. That's what I will say about her. Uh, yeah, I think yeah, she's got a little bit more hard edge to her. Now she's very charismatic, and this is um, one of the very few films I've seen with her in it. So. Uh, it's something that you see early on. I was very taken by her, her natural charm and charisma. And you're right. She's sort of a harder edged, uh, woman as opposed to sort of the, the fainting damsel in distress with the soft features. Right. Right. And so you get her introduction and things and it's well done. And I will say this also about the film. I really like that the camera moves a lot of times in old films, the camera doesn't move. Uh, in this one, you get some really nice tracking shots. Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. A lot of times film was very conventional uh, back in, in, in this era. 
mm-hmm. and uh, I think it's so easy to take for granted now because we've been lulled into the moving camera and some of the editing and everything else and music and films and stuff. But you, you almost have to really pay attention and, and sort of snap yourself out of that lull and say, wait a second, this is 1931. Um, that's, <laughs> yes. that's pretty unconventional for the time. Yes, tracking shots and things are unconventional. And that goes to Mr. William Wellman, who some of you might be familiar with Mr. Wellman. He uh, directed quite a few films. He was actually, I think, one of the first Oscar winners when the Academy Awards came around. I believe he uh, directed Wings, which I think was the first Academy Award winning Best Picture, which still has, I have to agree with Mr. Scorsese, he said this actually, that it still has some of the most amazing airplane and dogfight scenes you've ever seen before in your life. I mean, they really went up and shot some stuff for this thing, and so it's some pretty amazing stuff. Well, uh, Wellman actually was, his first love was aviation, and he was a, he was a flight instructor. I think he flew in, flew in the war, um, so that was clearly his, his first love. Right, right. And, uh, yeah, he, he definitely brings it in this film as well. Now, I know him. Uh, he's also known for uh, Jimmy Cagney's uh, Public Enemy, which is one of the more infamous uh, pre-code films as well, with Jimmy Cagney playing the kind of badass uh, gangster that he would become known for, which is always odd to me because Cagney was, uh, as he would always say, a song and dance man. And yet he ended up, you know, here's this short little guy who ended up playing tough guys all the time, you know. And, uh, yeah, he played him over the top. He was an over the top actor, I'll give you. But he's always kind of been like, to me, he's always been like that era's Jack Nicholson. You know, we know he's over the top, but we enjoy watching him anyway. Yes, that's a good, that's a good comparison I never really thought of. Yes, yes. I mean, because you think about Jack Nicholson, I always think about him as, you know, yeah, he goes over the top a lot. Uh, but he doesn't do it quite like, uh, Mr. Pacino does, which is, uh, where, you know, he loses his mind on screen. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Hooah! <laughs> anyway, anyway, but yeah, Mr. Wellman, he directed quite a few great films, and uh, I think he worked all the way up to 1958 uh, in uh, making films, and there's a lot of stuff in his filmography uh, that I like. Uh, the Oxbow Incident with Henry Fonda, that's a good film, I can tell you. Uh, there's a lot of stuff in his filmography I haven't seen, because it's not real easy to find all of it, but uh, yeah, I do know The Oxbow Incident's good. Uh, I'm trying to look through here real quick and see if there's anything else I can recommend. Uh, wow. Did a Tarzan movie there? I uh, <laughs> didn't see, didn't expect that. Uh, yeah, he did uh, quite a few films. Let's just put it that way. Just look through his filmography there, and you'll see some stuff that's interesting. But uh, yeah, I liked a lot of his stuff. Uh, now, to go further into this and stuff again, I brought up the early use of tracking shots and moving cameras and things. That is the one thing that really kind of struck me about this film. The film is also. It's not shot to me like a conventional noir film. There's not a lot of shadow, uh, a lot of stuff like that. Now, noir really didn't catch on, I think, until maybe the 40s, but uh, it still has very dark elements to the film. Uh, it, it is a very dark film. Alyssa even said in her voicemail there that uh, the film is actually very dark. It is. Uh, you heard in the plot synopsis that uh, people are trying to... Uh, uh, basically kill children. It's not really giving the plot away much here because there's a twist to the film, which I won't give away. But let me just say that there is a bad guy in the film named Nick who is played by the cinematic idol and uh, one of my favorite of the classic actors just because of the, what a great face he had because uh, it was so unique, and that was Clark Gable. And uh, it's a great – it's actually a really good performance. You know, I'm used to seeing Clark Gable as the good guy. You know, he's always been the, you know, kind of, he might be kind of uh, gray like he was in Gone with the Wind where he's kind of a hard ass, but he was a, you know, hard ass with a heart of gold or something like that. I think it's worth noting this is a pre-mustachioed. 
Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. And Gable had one of the only, uh, you know one of those unique mustaches because it was that pencil thin thing uh, that I always uh, as, was envious of because I can't I, I can grow a, a nice fat uh, John uh, uh, what's what's his name John Oates there the, <laughs> the Holland Oates dude. <laughs> I can grow oh, one of those. Daryl Hall and John. Yeah, John Oates, yeah. I see. I can't remember John's name without saying Daryl Hall. It's like milk and cookies and yeah. Sammy and Willie. You can't really have one without the other. Yeah, there you go. And uh, But I can never – I never had the patience to groom one quite like Mr. Gable did. And, uh, yeah, it reminds me of uh, – you know, I always wish that Clark Gable would have made it uh, – would have lived longer and done some, like, revenge films in the 60s and stuff. I think he unfortunately passed away. Kind of prematurely, you know, hard living, cigarette smoking, you know, uh, bad eating, things like that. Kind of caught up with him and stuff. But uh, the man just had a unique face, to say the least. And uh, I wish he would have played more bad guys because he's really good in this one uh, as Nick, the chauffeur. So basically, these children in the film, they're kind of being slowly starved to death. So, <laughs> you know, you think about films from 1931, you think about that and you think, oh, yeah, you know, uh, there, there's nothing really hardcore in classic films and stuff, but... You know, we talked about this before. Kids dying on film is still a, a touchy subject, even in this day and age. And oh, here, here you are, back in the '30s, and they're, they're they're killing children on screen. We're talking almost 80 years ago, and they're slowly murdering these two children. You get just this fucking lush bitch mother. <laughs> That's a perfect example of her, too. Yes. It just yeah. I mean, this is this is dark stuff. I mean, especially for the time. Yes, and the funny thing is. Alcohol, you can see, was such a demon because uh, everybody in this film that drinks is like the most uh, the most unresponsible person on the face of the planet. <laughs> <laughs> it's like if they drink, they are awful. And I mean, that's basically what I felt like the film was telling me. It's like if you drink alcohol, you are a piece of shit. <laughs> uh, which, you know, as we know, isn't the case. I mean, I, t- I have a drink every now and then. I'm sure you do as well. You know, you're not doesn't mean you're a bad person. It just... In this in this day and age, obviously alcohol was the devil, and uh, it's pretty interesting. And there's a great scene with Stanwyck uh, confronting some people about their alcoholism and things. Very interesting stuff. Uh, the film and there's and this will probably be maybe one of the shortest reviews we do because I can say this because the film is not long. The film's only like 72 minutes long, uh, so it's kind of hard to talk about it a lot because it's a very basic plot, very simple. But there's interesting scenes with Barbara Stanwyck and the bootlegger that she meets that are very interesting. The film has a twist in it toward the end, which we're not going to give away here on the show, that uh, I didn't see coming. Uh, it actually ends kind of uh, something I didn't expect the way it ended. Let's just put it that way. So you guys that are interested in pre-code Hollywood films, black and white films, you should definitely check this out because it is pretty unique in the way it ends and things. Uh, uh, I don't know... Uh, with the what Alyssa said with noir and stuff, I don't know if I really consider this the perfect example of noir. I, it is noirish in the way that it's dark, but it's not the perfect example of what I consider noir, which is kind of uh, shadows and camera work and and a lot of German expressionism things like that. Uh, but it is still a very solid film because uh, the first thirty minutes. Uh, to give you guys an idea, the first 30 minutes is kind of uh, a little light. Uh, you get a lot of scenes of women undressing, which was very taboo back in the day. Uh, yeah. <laughs> in the film, they undress at least five times. It's like every time they can give Barbara Stanwyck to change clothes on camera while she's doing some dialogue, they they make her do it. It's almost like William Wellman was the spiritual <laughs> grandfather of Russ Meyer, an army man who had a love for yes 
<laughs> the ladies uh, on film undressing and yes. so forth. Yeah, it doesn't they don't he, he doesn't ogle on the bodies like uh, Mr. Martino does, but he does. Uh, he does, you know, keep the frame there, keep them centered in the frame, having them changing clothes, and it happens quite often. Uh, another interesting thing that I always love in these movies with people who have money is there's a bearskin rug. Now, let's be honest. Bearskin rugs, are they even practical? <laughs> Only to make love on. <laughs> yes. Fireside, of course. <laughs> yes. I mean, when I see a bearskin rug just kind of laying around somebody's house, uh, which I have never seen in, uh, in reality, uh, I have seen in like a lodge or something, you know. But in movies, they yes, that's what they're for—making love in front of a fire, things like that. But in reality, is really is a bearskin rug really practical? People, come on! I mean, you know, just let me get that out there. I mean, is it really practical to have you know a dead bear on your floor? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I can imagine what, what my, my dogs would do to a bearskin rug. <laughs> oh fuck! You know, it's almost like you stick your foot in your mouth, and you can end up you know hurting your foot. There's still teeth in the mouth. Yes, and this one looks like a polar bear, by the way. So I, th- I don't know. Maybe it's a polar bear rug. I have no idea. <laughs> it's white, so that's all I'll say. All right, so I, I don't really have a whole lot more to add. It's really uh, impossible to talk about this film much further. I will say that the one, there's an insult in the film where one character calls another character a name, and it's the first time I've ever heard this insult, and hopefully the last time because it's the worst insult ever, where one character calls another one a baby frightener. So, I mean, how ugly can you be that you're a baby frightener? So an uh, ugly character gets called a baby frightener. You're a baby frightener. <laughs> so uh, that's an interesting insult to say the least. Um, yeah, that's pretty much it. I'll kick it over to you and let you go over a few things. Okay. Uh, the first thing right away, this film grabs me in that the car, the, the film opens very quickly on sort of this breakneck. It's almost like the camera's in the ambulance and you get this whizzing around the streets and the ambulance pulls into, uh, the hospital. And I thought that was pretty interesting because it looked pretty good, um, for the time. And it, I don't know how they did, if they sped it up or, or what they did, but it looked pretty good and, and pretty, um, it gave you a good sense of, of of the speed and the sort of whizzing around of the ambulance. Yes, I'll have to agree with you on that, man, because uh, that came out of nowhere. And I guess they did film speed it up because those automobiles they were driving, I've driven older automobiles from the 60s and the 50s, and they're hard to handle. <laughs> yeah, no power steering, man. <laughs> yeah, so they had to have sped that up, man, because if not, somebody had some serious skill driving that ambulance. <laughs> That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> the skills to pay the bills. Yes. Um, I think certainly as a sign of its time or a sign of the times, you can see when it opens up in the hospital, a woman's going to go into labor. And uh, I can't remember who it was. I think it was one of the men says to the woman, boy? And she says, girl. And he goes, oh. And he's all disappointed that it's not a boy. Yes. I go, like, oh, yeah. great, thanks. Yeah, yeah, a little bit of a different time. Yes, I saw and then, that. You know, his wife's going in. He goes, come on, honey, make sure it's a boy. And it's like, it, I don't know, it just kind of, that's pretty disappointing. It, I mean, I understand it was a different time, but yeah. shit, man. Like she has any control over that. It's like the way you yes. push uh, makes a penis grow. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. Another thing that I thought was very interesting, uh, and especially considering this is almost 80 years ago, is although it was in the background, you get to see Chinese people on screen speaking in their native tongue. Mm-hmm. Yes, I saw that. Now, a lot of times, you know, Asian people weren't really in films. And I, mind you, I'm not overly familiar. I'll be the first one to say, I'm, listen, I'm not very familiar with films pre-1960. Um, noir is something that I have an interest in. I've seen a little bit, but not that much. Admittedly, I'm pretty uh, pretty green when it comes to, and, and a lot of fun with this this time. So mm-hmm. uh, forgive me if some of what I say indicates my lack of uh, experience but um yeah just to see chinese people on screen again it's a very minor thing in the film but i think 
you know, so often in TV and film, you never got to see anyone but white people, uh, especially this early on. So I thought that was kind of interesting. And there's a couple little scenes. Then a second scene where the, the Chinese mother, uh, Barbara Simmons' character, picks up the baby and gives the baby and so forth. So, again, just kind of interesting for me. Um, and you also get a nice scene of uh, birth and uh, how they kind of prepared the babies back then. I don't know if they – I haven't been in a – I don't have any children, so I haven't been in a room with somebody having a child. But uh, uh, I'm sure there is a little bit of manhandling to clean the child off and things. But, wow, I was kind of stunned at uh, how far they went with that uh, – the cleaning of the child there. That, I think that kid was not happy when they turned the water on. <laughs> no, man. They were like – they rubbed them in like some sort of oil and, and so forth and then they put them under the water. And I was in the room with my wife and – I didn't remember it being like that. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was. I was going to ask you that. So I'm glad you brought that up. I was going to ask you it was, you know, were they throwing little William around? Uh, you know, wiping him off, throwing him under the water. You know, uh, putting a little, you know, <laughs> a little yeah, dawn pizza on dough or something, <laughs> yeah. spinning him. And... <laughs> that's what it looked like. It looked like they were making a pizza. You're right. <laughs> like kneading him, like kneading dough. <laughs> oh, I know the olive oil. You know, working it in. <laughs> yeah, no, I know that was interesting. It's interesting, and that's the thing. I always find it very. I've said this in other reviews, and I'll continue to say it. I always find it very interesting to look at older films and see uh, technological uh, signs of the times, and, and this one medicinal uh, or medical signs of the times, like some of the big glass jars and the way they handled the baby and and just the overall philosophy in this, that nursing was very much a lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Um, they lived all together. They had a curfew. Um, you know, It was basically like you devoted your life. It's almost like becoming a nun. You devoted your life to becoming a nurse. Interestingly, my wife uh, saw me watching this, and she's like, oh, I hate those. Uh, and she's talking about the nursing outfit, which uh, for stereotypical nursing outfits, this is a good example. Nurses do not dress like that ever, but uh, anymore especially. But uh, my wife actually does work with some old school nurses, and uh, they still dress like that. They still wear the little nursing hat and everything. Wicked. It is. It's pretty interesting. <laughs> That's funny. I guess sometimes now they'll wear the... Uh, uh, what do they call it? I was going to say habit, which is yeah. clearly not what they wear. Um, well, I mean, it's like me. You know, I go to work sometimes in my red leather pants because, you know, yes. I grew up in the late 70s, early 80s. So My, my, my mesh cut-off T-shirt, yes. half shirt. Yes. Um, <laughs> one thing I always find with, with older films, just from a technical standpoint, it's a bit of a critique, but I think that's the thing we have to give films a fair shake, is editing with these films is always a split second behind. It's not quite timed as well as it should be in that – you get the pause, and it's almost like um, they're prompted to say the line, so then they say the line. You know what I mean? It's not edited quite tight enough to to fill in those gaps of, of when people seem prompted for their lines. Yeah, again, I think you might be discussing something that's a sign of the times because you got to remember that uh, film dialogue has totally changed now. So now we're so attuned to uh, the way film dialogue works, the way scenes change, and the way things are told out of context and stuff. That we don't need, you know, 55 blending shots. There's a lot of blending in this film where the the dialogue happens and then you see the film quality change and it fades and then goes into another scene. There's a lot of that blending in this film. Uh, I think it's just a sign of the times, again, the type of storyteller or storytellers we had in the early 30s. Uh, they did like to linger is the right word I think you're looking for there because that's what, that's what I felt like. I felt like they were lingering as if we were like, okay, I got to catch up with the story. Uh, which might have been the case because you got to remember people didn't have televisions or anything else, so, and, and talkies were new too as well. They'd only been around like maybe a year, two years, maybe at tops. Yeah, that's actually a good point. Is the fact that yeah, you have to kind of um, be where the audience is in terms of their experience. Because think about as a as a film viewer when you watch film, um, 
when you're younger up until now, the you you even so here's an example Altman the way Altman uses that overlaying dialogue that's something that you kind of have to get accustomed to so like you said because the the talking pictures were new at the time they kind of have to get people acclimated to them uh, a little bit so yeah as much as it's not just the film itself it's the audience watching the film so that's a good point yes um, you'd mentioned the baby frightener and I think he was a sleaze ball. <laughs> Well, they didn't make any secret of it. He was very sleazy right from the get-go. He just walks in on them changing clothes. No big deal. <laughs> walks in on them changing clothes. And it's funny because um, he says to uh, uh, Maloney, who's uh, Stan Mc's friend, he says, sometimes I don't like you, Maloney. And she says, rapid fire right back to him. Wish I could make it permanent. And you get some of that little kind of snappy back and forth dialogue that was really um, one of the great things of this time period. Right. Like his girl right. Friday, all that sort of screwball stuff, the sort of back and forth with the sexes and and uh, whatnot. So I thought that was kind of funny. And you mentioned the changing. I mean, that must have been quite the uproar at the time. You get these two women, they're, they're changing and they're out of their, you can see them in their bra and their underwear. And let me just say, granny underwear has come a long way because granny underwear today is infinitely hotter. <laughs> granny underwear today is like the th- cinematic equivalent of like a Brazilian G-string compared to granny un- or to normal underwear back then. Yeah. Normal underwear th- then is like, you cut two holes in a in a pillowcase and it's underwear. It's so unattractive. Yes, it doesn't do anything for female bodies either. Then they used to call them, they call them bloomers. I think bloomers. I think yeah, they look like there was something blooming. But I'll tell you something. Nothing on me would be blooming if I had to see a woman in those underwear. Yes. <laughs> um, in our next in our next film review, we'll get to talk about women with lack of underwear. <laughs> yes. Um, just a couple more things here. Uh, there's a funny quote again when they're changing and someone says, oh, don't be embarrassed. I just came from the delivery room. I've seen it all. <laughs> yeah, well, that yeah. Uh, that's kind of true, I guess. <laughs> yes, in a sense, I guess. Um, let's see. What else do I got here? Um, I liked it was a sort of a stylistic choice, I guess, more than anything to have um, – each night sort of represented by the the time cards or the um, – what's the term I'm looking for here? Uh, basically like a, doc, like a docket of some sort telling them where they're working and uh, what day they're working and who they're working with. Yeah, like a – it was basically like a framing device. It was pretty good. It was, I like that too. I like that too. Yeah, it was interesting. It's almost like um, the uh, silent film era kind of carrying over into the talkies. You know what I mean? Yes, because it has to convey something without – spending too much time on it so it's a very quick and efficient way to to get it across right right um you get to see again at the time some very some interesting moral decisions uh a bootlegger comes in and and the nurse sort of breaks the law by not reporting him because he gets a gunshot wound um so i thought that was very interesting and you can look at it nowadays and think oh what's the big deal but Again, look at it, you know, 80 years ago almost, if a nurse did not do that and she, you know, takes care of this this guy and, I mean, she could lose her job. I mean, and this is one of the quote-unquote bad guys. So, again, right. there is some sort of some interesting stuff here from a moral standpoint. Um, a couple more quotes. There's a line here. Someone says, I'm a nymphomaniac and proud of it. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so that's that's always nice to hear. Yes. Uh <laughs> Overall, I thought Barbara Stanwyck was actually really great in the film. It's nice to see a strong female lead so early in films for me. I mean, she's very comfortable, very assured um, without being sort of this, you know, you get this a lot of times in genre films. I think it's it's become almost cliche for the tough chick to the point where it's kind of, you know, I kind of grown and go, oh, come on. You know, but to do a convincing, tough 
a female lead, I think, is is a testament to um, to Wellman and to Stanwyck. Uh, really good. She was really, really good in the film. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I agree. And uh, I liked that uh, her love interest was a criminal. Yes. Yes. As a matter of fact, you'll hear me talk about that in the make or break. Yeah. I mean, I just think it's one of those things, again, that you have to give credit where it's due and, and just, you know, look at it in the context of when it was made. Wow. You know, her boyfriend is a criminal. So what does that say? I mean, it, it just, you wouldn't have seen that. I mean, especially not after the code came into effect, but um, just goes to, again, to show how progressive film was for the time and, and uh, who knows where he would have been cinematically. Uh, and I do want to say just in, in an interesting piece of trivia, Jimmy Cagney was actually going to play Nick the Chauffeur, but uh, Public Enemy came out and, of course, he blew up and it gave uh, Gable a chance to come in sans mustache and, uh, <laughs> and play the heel. Yes, yes. He does a good job, like I say. does a good job. Yeah, I can't, can't talk about his character too much because it gives away a, a major plot point. But, uh, yeah, I liked uh, Gable in this film quite a bit. Would have been interesting to see Cagney. It was, uh, I think, might have been shorter than Stanwyck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I do want to say Stanwyck is half Canadian, so. Woohoo! Yes, yes. She's half Canadian. All right, so I guess I'll give my MVT and my make or break, and then I'll kick it back over to you. My make or break for the film is going to be the scene where they're in like a soda shop. This is back in the days when people would have root beer floats for a good time and things like that and stop by the soda shop. Uh, yeah, and I think they're having like a float of some sort or something, and there's this flirting between her and the criminal who has the heart of gold. You know, he's very Robin Hood-esque, very uh, playful, charismatic, and uh, I really like the flirting between them two. It felt very natural, and that's something you brought up. You know how the the screwball comedy, the, the quick dialogue, the way they used to stage dialogue scenes back in the 30s and 40s was, and even the 50s was very almost like a play as opposed to a film, and... Uh, their their conversation is very natural. It doesn't feel like uh, a film from 1931, and I, f- I found that very interesting. And uh, it really um, put a smile on my face, I have to say. So, you know, uh, that's the scene I decided to choose to go with. Uh, my MVT for the film is going to be Wellman himself. I think he's an interesting director who was probably ahead of his time. Uh, he didn't – well, he made quite a few films, but you got to remember he made a lot of films in the studio system and in the silent. I mean, there's some years where he made four – three and four films, so – so he made a lot of silent movies before he got into this, but he managed to make the transition from silent movies into uh, talkies quite well. And uh, I really, you know, I really like his uh, camera style. I think it's very nice, very uh, ahead of its time, let's just say. And my score for the film, I'm going to go with a solid seven out of ten. I think if you're into film history, I think if you're into pre-code Hollywood or anything or older films at all, I think you'll enjoy this movie. It's a short movie. Uh, it's a good little entertaining watch. It's not, it's not boring. I mean, it moves along at a brisk pace. And uh, it's fun to see Clark Gable in a bad guy role. And uh, Barbara Stanwyck, of course, very young Barbara Stanwyck. I grew up when she was on a TV show, I believe, called The Big Valley or something. I didn't grow up watching that. That was in the 60s, I think, when it was on TV. But I, it was on reruns when I was growing up. And my mom and dad would watch it and stuff because they had grown up watching it, right? So it was on TV and stuff. And I always remember this uh, white-haired lady who was tough as nails even then. And... Uh, you know, I didn't know I'd become a big film fan and find out who Barbara Stanwyck was the other way. So, very interesting, very interesting. So, that's my score, 7 out of 10. I'll kick it over to you. Okay, my make or break. Um, the early scenes of Stanwyck and Blondell, I just, I really like their their uh, their friendship and, and sort of, uh, just their sort of witty kind of back and forth. And they just felt like believable female characters to me. And I don't tend to like, uh, you know, being, you know, a bit of a, 
you know, a, a bit of <laughs> being a guy, uh, you know, I don't always tend to care about seeing the female relationships on screen, but I really did like their relationship and, and sort of, um, you know, them going to, to cahoots and, and sneaking out and, and just sort of back and forth and, and Lionel gave it showing her the ropes and stuff. So I really liked that stuff. Uh, for me, it kind of set the film up and, and, um, made both characters very likable to me playing off each other. Um, my MVT is also Wellman. I think, you know, Stanwyck was, could have very easily been, uh, she puts in a great performance, great performances by, uh, all the principals. But I think the fact that, um, Wellman put this together and, you know, a lot of it, the decisions and the sort of, uh, moral ambiguity or not even ambiguity, but sort of the darker moral stuff and just the overall, um, the, the main point of the film, uh, with the children, I think you got to give them credit for having the nuts to, uh, to do this back in a time that, uh, wasn't really illustrated as much on film. So he's my MVT. Um, my score for the film was a 7.5 out of 10. Nice. Um, I, I think it's a film that anyone who, who likes film should check out. I mean, I'll be honest. I'm not the biggest fan. Or I, have a bit of an, I have a bit of an aversion to older film because I do find it kind of clunky and overacted and stuff. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. Um, this is a film that I think is worth checking out because of what it does uh, for strong female leads, like uh, Alyssa said, and I think sort of the darker moral tone. So, you know, if you got 70 minutes to kill on a Sunday afternoon, why not? It's a really good film. Yes, yes, I agree. I agree. All right, so that is our review of Night Nurse, and we will be back after the short break with our review of The Wicker Man. What's up, everybody? This is Bill from Outside the Cinema, and I'm sitting here with the one and only Arnold Schwarzenegger. How are you, Arnold? Good morning. Thank you for taking the time to join me. We were just talking about how much you enjoy Outside the Cinema. Is that correct? Yeah. It's your favorite show, right? Yeah. So, if you were to choose one podcast to listen to, it would be Outside the Cinema, wouldn't it? Come on. Don't bullshit me. Whoa, 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 whoa. Stop it. You don't need to be like that. Stop whining. I'm not whining. Whatever your name is, get ready for the big surprise. Oh, enough of this. Who are you? What you just heard was the reason why Outside the Cinema doesn't do pre-recorded bits. Because they do them terribly. But if you like horror, exploitation, cult, and underground cinema, believe it or not, though, they put together a pretty good show. So head over to www.outsidethecinema.com and take a listen to the show today. gentlemen this is christine i just wanted to call in my pick for um ladies choice month and that would be 1973's the wicker man starring one of my many cinematic boyfriends christopher lee um thank you i hope you guys enjoy talking about it because i'm definitely looking forward to hearing it bye all right you just heard from christine there with her selection for ladies appreciation month and uh, it is 1973's wicker man the wicker man i should say uh, yes, it is truly the Wicker Man with yes. that <laughs> shit storm that Lebutin Le Cage put up. Yes, which we'll talk about, I'm sure, throughout this. All right, I'll give a basic plot synopsis, and then I'll kick it over you, and we'll get going on this. Uh, the Wicker Man, 1973, directed by Robin Hardy. Uh, basic plot is a police sergeant is called to an island village in search of a missing girl whom the locals claim never existed. Stranger still, however, 
are the rituals that take place there. Uh, that's a basic plot synopsis. No spoilers there. Everything else. So uh, I'll kick it over to you, and we'll get going. Okay, this is a film both you and I had seen before, and we're both fans of. Uh, one thing I think is very interesting that gives the film a bit of uh, grounded in reality feel is the very opening of the film says the producer would like to thank Lord Summer Isle and the people of his island off the west coast of Scotland for this privileged um, insight into their religious practices and for their generous cooperation in making the film. So very interesting. It gives it sort of an authentic feel that um, makes everything that happens afterwards much more uh, dramatic. Yes, yes. Um, I think it was a good idea. You see op- the opening th- sequence in the film is the plane flying over the aisles. And it gives a sort of um, an involving or interest, uh, sort of a, an insight into how isolated they were on the island. Uh, you get to see a lot of beautiful, ancient, sort of unintruded landscape. And um, again, you know, it just goes to show you how uh, alone or, s- or cut off from the rest of society Sergeant Howie is and will be. Yes, uh, I really, really love that opening. I'll say that now. It's in my notes. Actually, the first note I have is I love the opening because it's just I love the Scottish Isles. I think it's like they're so beautiful to look at. And uh, this really gives you a nice a nice opening credit sequence and uh, a nice kind of aerial view of all that. Yeah, and I remember actually I've been to Scotland, as I've told a few people on the boards. I went over there to play rugby. And I remember um, coming through uh, when we got off the at the airport and taking the bus um, into Selkirk, Scotland, uh, just looking at the rolling green hills, and, th- and I just fell in love. I thought it is such a beautiful, beautiful place. Yes, really breathtaking. Um, the first sort of indication we get is it's sort of comedic in a sense, but it also is sort of a sign of what's to come. Is uh, Sergeant Holly brings his uh, boat, plane, or plane boat, or hydroplane, or whatever they're called, in, and he's having some difficulty getting you know sort of adjusted and getting uh, a dinghy or something to bring him in and. All the locals are just kind of standing around as he's uh, he's struggling to kind of uh, get his footing and, and get into shore. And, and he's got to ask them a few times, hey, come on, give me a dinghy, give me a dinghy. And it just, again, is very reflective of how unwelcoming they are of prying outsiders and, and their eye and their sort of outsiders' eyes uh, as far as what they do. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I like the uh, – that's something I've always liked in horror films. I like it when the stranger comes to a strange town and, you know, everything's just a little off. And I'll speak more to that when I get to my side uh, because things are definitely off <laughs> on this little island. <laughs> What's that saying? There's something rotten in the state of Denmark? Oh, God, there's something strange going on in Summer Isle. <laughs> yeah, you got that right. Um, and the thing is, sort of these are two recurring things that really go hand in hand is um, how much they don't like outsiders and how ruffled uh, Sergeant Howie's feathers get and how frustrated he gets at being stonewalled at every corner. And he's a very determined man and he's a very deeply religious and conservative man, a man of order and, and justice and law and everything else. And he is very firm in his beliefs. I mean, he gets stonewalled at every turn by um, the residents of Summerall. You can just see him get increasingly frustrated. Yes, yes, he gets uh, very frustrated. And you're right, he is a very uptight, very fundamental fundamentalist, I should say. Uh, gentleman who, uh, you know, he's got very black and white uh, feelings about what is right and what is wrong. And uh, you kind of get on his side a little bit, even if you're not that narrow-minded. And I'm not saying that people like that are completely narrow-minded, but I'm just saying that's the way his character is portrayed in a way. He can't understand what's going on. And watching the film again, I kind of get that feeling too. I mean, I knew what was going on. You know, this is like, I don't know, fifth, sixth time I've seen it easy. Uh yeah, there was moments where the first time I saw it, I can remember the frustration of what the fuck is going on? 
Mm-hmm. You know, and you kind of get behind that character and and the way he thinks and stuff. And I think uh, Edward Woodward, who has an unfortunate name, Edward Woodward, it's hard to say for me for some reason. <laughs> He's very popular in America for a TV show called The Equalizer. And uh, I know he did some other TV shows in England and stuff. He's never really been a very big movie star. But uh, I think his performance as this kind of uppity, very religious, very deeply fundamentalist man is uh, actually very one of the big strong points for the film, I think. Oh, absolutely. He anchors it, and it gives a lot of conviction in his performance of a man with conviction. Uh, interesting piece of trivia I found out in doing some research. Michael York, Logan himself, uh, was up for the role. David Hemmings of, uh, of course, Deep Red and Caligula and Heroin Busters and everything else, those two men were both up for the role of uh, Howie, and they turned it down. And I think, in a way, it's a bit of a blessing because, for me, I hadn't seen Woodward too much, so um, the actor didn't loom large over the part. I was able to find the part very believable. Yes, I don't I don't think those other two actors, in hindsight, I don't think that uh, they could have put off that uh, stick-in-the-mud performance that Woodward did. No, or stick up his ass performance. Yeah. You know, that guy, they, they that guy is so stiff, and he and they, at one point in the film, it's mentioned that he's still a virgin. I'm sitting there thinking, Jesus Christ, this guy's got to be in his forties, and he's still yeah, a that's, virgin. <laughs> that's one sort of minor critique I have of the film is he looks he's supposed to be this sort of newly or not newlywed, but he's on the cusp of getting married, and he looked a little old to be someone who's just on the cusp of marriage. Um, yeah, oh, Michael York. I mean, this and that that hunky Brit uh, <laughs> wouldn't have been a virgin at that point. No, no. Um, <laughs> We saw in uh, Logan's run how he was with the ladies. But uh, anyway, you get sort of an uh, – we and, uh, of course, how we get a very odd introduction to the landlord's daughter <laughs> through this bizarre song where all the old men in the village are singing about their boners and her wondrous magical box and the delight between her legs. And it's just a really bizarre moment as her father kind of looks on and smiles at, with pride at uh, – the lovely assets uh, everyone admires of his daughter. Yes, yes. <laughs> I mean, there's fucking fiddles and accordions. We're clearly not in Kansas or in Edinburgh anymore or hey, Glasgow. <laughs> the weird thing about that scene to me is, and there's a lot, of, there's a few musical numbers in the film. The weird thing about the scene is to me is that it's obvious Edward Woodward's character is irritated by this, uh, you know, pub crawling song. Uh, but he never, he just sat there the whole song. I mean, he just sat there and just kept taking it, and I'm. I, I, you know, I felt like that that was kind of, you know, just a just a device to move the to move the song along, and you know, I mean, if he's actually that irritated, I would have left. I'd have been like, these guys are fucking weird. I'm out of here. <laughs> but yes. uh, it's obvious, you know, he had to stick around to hear it and stuff, and and we do get to see more of the landlord's daughter. Uh, yes, we get to see more of her and uh, of her body double as well. <laughs> and her, and we get to hear more of her voice double, and that brings me to my next point. I thought. Um, and I think it was uh, Wilson was saying it was uh, – I can't remember if he had said it, one of his mother's friends was the body double or the voice double. But um, she either way, she was dubbed quite well, I thought. Yes, she was. I was absolutely convinced every time I've seen this, even watching it again uh, just recently, that uh, the dubbing was very well done because it almost feels like it's uh, Britt Brit Eklund actually doing the singing. Yeah, absolutely it does. It was really, really good dubbing, especially for its time. Uh, so kudos to – whomever did that. And speaking of doubles, I always found it very interesting that she got an ass double when she was quite willing in films to bare her breasts repeatedly. I mean, she's a beautiful, beautiful woman. Um, so I just found it odd that she wanted to get an ass double. I don't know. Maybe, uh, I don't know. It's, let's just put it this way. The ass on the double is nice. 
Yes. Uh, but I will say that if I was Britt Eklund, I might have been offended a little bit by the quote-unquote whisker biscuit that was flashing around <laughs> <laughs> because somebody needed some grooming tips. <laughs> yeah, but back then that was par for the course, man. Well, nowadays that would be considered rough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Not fairway, buddy. <laughs> That's certainly not fairway anymore. Um, but the scene with the said whisker biscuit uh, is a good scene because – you can see she's sort of enticing him through song, um, and she, it's almost takes on this mystical overtone that she's kind of able to lure men through song and dancing with her feminine charm. And you can see it just takes everything he has, as religious and as dedicated to his fiancée as he is, it takes everything he has to not succumb. Like, he's caressing the wall and feeling along the wall for her, and he's, I mean, he's praying. You can see it in his eyes. He is just... It's taking every ounce of everything he has. He's a he's a pretty strong man, I have to admit. It would be hard for me. Uh, I love my wife dearly. Uh, the thought of me being in that spot where I was getting ready to marry her, no, I would not cheat on her. But we're talking about Britt Eklund here, folks. <laughs> yes. And and her body double, who, you know, had the nice caboose and the, well, we won't talk anymore about the other area. I think we've discussed what that's called plenty enough. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, man. Yeah, and let me say, I wouldn't, neither would I. I wouldn't, uh, I, I firmly believe in, in being faithful, but uh, my opinions aside, it would have been, I would have been like him uh, caressing the wall and sweating on my upper lip, doing, taking everything I had to not do it. But Well, I, here's, here's the thing. I would have pulled a Harvey Cattell and Bad Lieutenant. I would have grabbed a hold of my area and furiously worked that thing until uh, that urge went away. <laughs> This is falling off the rails so fast. Yes. Is this what you wanted for a review, Christine? <laughs> to hear us stroke talk? Like Harvey, uh, like I say, like Harvey Cattell and Bad Lieutenant. Those of you yeah. who've seen it know what I'm talking about. If you have to start mumbling and, yeah, anyway, let's get off Cattell's masturbatory uh, <laughs> game. Um, we get to see the return of the juice harp and a Paul Dano lookalike on the fiddle during uh, a few musical numbers there at the pub, which I thought was kind of funny. What other, do you remember what other film it was that had the juice harp in it? I can't remember it off the top of my head. We, uh, oh, what was it? Was it The Longest Yard that had a juice harp in it? Fuck, I don't remember. I can't remember either. Uh, I love the instrument because it's such an odd-sounding instrument and stuff and so weird. And I'd forgotten that it was in this film, so when I saw it, I kind of laughed at myself, you know, because I was like, I know we're one of us is going to bring this up, so I can scratch <laughs> out on my notes that uh, you brought it up first. <laughs> well, yeah, it's it's just funny to see the juice harp, and that's going to become a thing now. Um I thought it was kind of interesting. The film at times feels like a musical because you get that number where she's enticing him and then um, you get the, the next back-to-back musical numbers because then you get the, the scene where the boys are learning about uh, life, essentially, uh, through the eyes of the yes. these pagans uh, and what their philosophy is and what the, you know, the, the seed of life and everything. Um, I'm, so I'm going to slightly disagree with you a little bit. I think the film is a musical almost. I know you said it's a little bit of a musical. I'm going to say it almost is a musical because the more and more I watch it, the more and more I realize that the story's moved along by song. Um, yeah, yeah, and I think part of it is because these people, and, you'll, and forgive my ignorance, I'm not the world's foremost expert on pagans. Yeah, me either. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I think a lot of times it was it was a stylistic way to explain their belief on things or give their sort of viewpoint on things without needless exposition because they're yes. about song and dance and reveling in, you know, the spirit of this and that. And I think to do that was twofold. It enabled them to do that. And it also enabled us to understand 
their philosophy. Right, right, right. And I don't like musicals, but no, I had no problem with this. I think it worked well within the context of the film because for the most part, they were peppered pretty evenly uh, throughout. Yes, yes, they spread them out nicely. Except for that yes. one. Except for that one you're talking about, where there's kind of like a back-to-back moment. Yeah, where you get Britain said biscuit, and then you get the teacher and the tree and the ribbons and <laughs> everything else. Um, oh. Again, you can just kind of see what sort of a, a rigid kind of man, and even a zealot. I mean, he really is a zealot. Um, well, I'm sure. He gets, I'm sure during that song, Brett Eklund was performing. He was very rigid. <laughs> Yeah, I never even thought of that. I should have chosen my words a little better. Um, but you can see he just – no respect for what they're doing. He comes into the classroom, erases the chalkboard. He chastises the teacher and many times and it really shows what a zealot he is. It's The problem is he at times could not separate his job from his beliefs. Yes, yes. And, and that became a problem uh, for him because part of it was his outrage at uh, their – their beliefs and part of it was him seeking what he felt was appropriate and then you get this thing where he opens up a desk and you can see the beetle on the string going round and round and the teachers or the the student says to him he goes round and round in circles and the further he goes the tighter he gets to the end and and so on so i really liked that part i thought it was really really good Mm -hmm. yeah there's a there's a kind of an allegory involved there which i won't go into because it kind of gives away the end of the film so Yes, um, but I think there's a great part right after that scene where he gets so mad at the the students being in cahoots. He says, "You're all despicable little liars," yes. and, it, it, and it you're the, tells the teacher Baldwin. tells the teacher, "You're the worst one of all." Yeah, you're the worst one of all because you're all despicable little liars, and that reminded me of Alec Baldwin calling his daughter a little pig. <laughs> oh Lord, oh poor, um, poor Alec Baldwin will never live that down. <laughs> no, no, he won't. Um, you can see, again, to further to add to his frustration, this church that has been in complete disrepair. The pews are tossed out. There's a woman breastfeeding in a cemetery. There's a jar of – oh, that's actually somewhere else. Never mind. Um, there's just – you can see how frustrated he is at how sacrilegious all of this is. But he has to understand that these people – here he cannot simply understand that these people have different beliefs and he's refuses to believe that there is any other beliefs but what he believes. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think you're supposed to get behind his character – but you ultimately kind of become frustrated with him because he is so narrow-minded as a character. Uh, now, when this came out in 73, maybe people were more behind him because you got to remember in 73, times were changing, so people were changing. And I really consider this a hippie horror film. You nailed it because I think a lot of time, partially, this rep- he represents the, the old way. Yes, and it's like careful if you keep banging that drum loud enough, the the new way is going to come up and yes, and bite you on the ass. Yes, and uh, you know it's very hippieish in its tone and the people standing around singing songs. I mean, you think about the quote unquote stereotypical hippie in the late '60s, early '70s. You get a lot of that feeling from this film. Very nature oriented. Very you know, live off the land and yes. communal feel and nudity and song and dance and yeah. frolicking. No bras, which you know I'm still a big fan of. Uh, <laughs> I mean, you get you get these, uh, and, and that's the thing that always strikes me is I always just feel like you know this is this is a hippie horror. This is a hippie. I don't even know. I don't know how you feel about this, but I don't even know if I would consider this a quote unquote horror film. It's kind of difficult to lump into any one category. I think it's a bit of a thriller. It's a bit of a musical. It's a bit of a mystery. I think there's some horrific elements in it, but I think if you're going to use a wide umbrella, it would fall under horror. But um, yeah, I don't know. Maybe it's tough. I don't think you can shoehorn this one into any 
one category. I sometimes think it's just considered a horror film because Christopher Lee's involved. That's probably part of it. I sometimes think that's why, but I think it's uh, you know I know Christopher Lee himself has said before that it's, it's the best film he ever did. And he he did this film for free actually. Yeah, and he was really behind it the whole time. And uh, Christopher Lee's a very smart man, a uh, very educated man, and uh, a big fan of story structure, storytelling, and history. And uh, you know he really loved the idea behind this story. And uh, did it for free. And I sometimes think it's considered a horror film just because he's in it. Because I th- honestly think, because originally Edward Woodward's part was supposed to be played by Peter Cushing. So if that would have happened, it would be even considered more of a horror film, I think. Because you would have had Cushing and Lee together again. So I don't know. I don't know. I mean, uh, I know that Cushing was uh, part of that also that uh, you were talking about, those other guys. Uh, uh, Michael York. Michael York. And, uh, he was actually part of that process, too. So I'm kind of glad Cushing didn't do it because then it would just consider being completely roped into the Hammer Horror thing. Whereas with Edward Woodward and stuff, it kind of gives Lee an interesting foil because he plays such a fundamentalist, straight-by-the-line kind of guy. And Christopher Lee is, is over the top and maybe the most hippie of hippies in Lord Summer Isle I've ever seen before in my life. <laughs> yeah, he's very, very, very much so. And I think there's a great scene. It sort of starts with you get to see these nude women dancing around and jumping through fire and uh, you know you want to talk about whisker biscuits i think jumping through that fire with feminine grooming being what it was at the time was a dangerous proposition yes yes and you know you get woodward who says he, he talks to, to uh lord summer says look at them they're naked and uh of course lord summer very nonchalantly says to him well naturally it's much too dangerous to jump through the fire with your clothes on and there's a great scene that goes back and forth and you can see that um, this sort of casual indifference uh, and this intelligence that Lord Samuel has, he proves to be a good foil for for uh, for Howie as well. Right. So, right. Um, but yeah, you nailed it. I mean, uh, Lee is really, really great in the film. Um, I just got a couple more notes here because I know you want to get into your stuff. Uh, these masks in this film are very iconic. They're very unsettling. I think you and I have both made no secret of the fact that masks are very creepy, I think, because of their, what's hiding behind them and the lack of emotion. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, very. Uh, I have to wonder if uh, the mask parts are very Kubrickian to me. Oh, my God, Rick, Sammy, Rick, <laughs> you just fucking took the note out of my next, or the, the words from my next note. Yeah, the words Go from the it. next note, yes. Uh, I had this, you know, watching it again and being you know now having a podcast and doing a show and talking about movies and stuff you know I'd always thought that they were Kubrickian but watching it again really brought out that kind of Kubrick feel of this oddness of these masks and people walking around and the way Kubrick was always very sterile about his uh kind of odd choices he made in films that totally had that feel and of course this predates any uh mask using he was using in uh, I think he used a mask quite effectively in The Shining and and Eyes co- Wide Shut is yeah. the one that really reminded me of the most. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you'd have to think that uh, Kubrick himself, I don't know for sure, but you'd have to think that he was quite a fan of The Wicker Man because it had quite a feel of uh, some stuff that he would do later in his career. And I think he only made you know three or four films after The Wicker Man. So, uh, yeah, I have to feel that he was very inspired by The Wicker Man. Uh, absolutely. And the masked ritual in Eyes Wide Shut, which, again, I've, you and I maintain is a very underappreciated film, the the masked ritual and the beliefs that are being uh, that are believed by the people involved in the masked ritual all sort of harkens to what these people of uh, Summer Isle feel. Right. So it right. certainly had to have been an influence. Um, there's a realization made by Howie near the end of the film that we, as the audience, feel with him. It's sort of this this terrible mixture, in a good way, of confusion, uncertainty, fear, 
that I think is really pulled off quite well. Yes, yes, I agree with you totally. Um, it, it becomes a very, a very grim, desperate, uh, slim hope situation that you know you just it's it feels very claustrophobic and. Um, the end set piece in the film, it must have taken them quite a while to build, and it's made all the more unsettling by everything that's involved in it. And I don't want to say much more than that because I don't want to spoil the film, but um, it's a scene that I think must have been very, very difficult emotionally and physically um, for the person who's primarily involved in it. Um, yeah, I just it's, it's a really, really effective moment in the film. I agree. I agree. I really don't have much more to add to it because I don't want to give away anything either. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just got a couple more notes. Uh, one note: there was a good ratio of hot blonde cougars on the island. <laughs> yes, you get Ingrid Pitt as well, who was in a lot of Hammer films, and as the librarian, she gives him a rather seductive look with this kind of Princess Leia hairdo. Yes, there's her, and there's Diane uh, Chalento or Salento. Yes, she yes. was actually uh, Sean Connery's wife. Yes. Was that the one that was in the washtub basin when he walked in at one point? That, that was Miss Rose. Ah, yes. Who was uh, Lord Summer Isle? He of the crushed velvet and ruffle shirt, Lord oh. Summer Isle. Uh, it was his woman. Yes, nice. <laughs> Teacher. Yes, she was uh, uh, nice in the – I like that in the wash tub. That was nice. It was very nice. Uh, this film, I think also you talk about influence. I mean we could go on and on about the influences, but I think um, e- easily Eli Roth must have been influenced uh, when he made Hostel because you get sort of these – Stranger in this. Oh, I mean, it's been done a lot, but I just couldn't help but feel that he must have been very influenced by this film. Yes, I agree. Uh, it does have a very hostile feel too. I, I didn't really think about that, but now thinking about hostile and thinking about the Wicker Man, I can totally see that. I can see the uh, you know people feeling out of place. Something's kind of odd going on. Yeah, I'd have to say that he is influenced by this film somewhat. Absolutely. And uh, just one more thing, I want to say as a piece of trivia. I don't know if you're going to bring this up. Robin Hardy hasn't done much work, but he is working on a follow-up uh, or reimagining that I think is a true reimagining uh, of The Wicked Man called Cowboys for Christ. Yeah, I can't wait to see this film. I was just actually looking at that. It's funny you brought it up. I was actually looking at that on my IMDb while we were sitting here because I'm like, what else has Robin Hardy done? He's done hardly anything. He's done this. He did The Fantasist. I think he did a TV show, and now he's doing a reimagining. He's only done like four things, so uh, not exactly the quality of Mr. Terrence Malick, but... That he's going back and reimagining uh, this film, I am highly anticipating this. I can't wait for this to come out. I really want to see this. Yes, and anyone who's seen The Fantasist, let us know, because it sounds like, from what I've seen, sort of like this Irish mid-'80s giallo kind of uh, film. So let us know if it's any good, because it, it's gotten kind of mixed reviews on IMDb, but we all know how reliable that is. So, yes, yes. Um, those are all the notes I have on my side, Sammy. All right. I'll just go over a few things. Uh have just a couple more things. Uh, uh, I do... I do want to mention again the musical numbers. I really, really enjoyed those. Now, the first time I ever saw this film, the musical numbers really took me out. But I think that's because I was under the impression I was watching a horror film. Yes. And that really affected the first time I ever saw this film. I really thought, oh, this this film doesn't have anything to really offer me. I'm not interested in people singing. Yeah, it's got some breasts and a nice whisker biscuit and whatnot. But (laughs) at the same time, (laughs) you know, it didn't give me anything else, you know. So... Uh, I didn't really care for it the first time I saw it. Let me, let me, let me point that out because what I'm going to say at the end of this review, I think I'll, I'll show you what I'm trying to get to. It, it really, really was slow for me the first time I saw it. I mean, it, it just really kept taking me out. The musical numbers, the, the, the very hippie-ish vibe of it. I was like, oh, God, this film is going to be awful. 
And then the more I thought about it after I see it, and this is the way I am sometimes. Sometimes I won't critique a film until I see it a couple times. And I, I do believe that your opinions of films, I'm one of those believers, that as much as you might love a film, like let's say, for instance, Martyrs, which at the time when you saw it, you were so pumped, you gave it a 10 out of 10. You, you're like, this is a perfect film and everything else. And you might still feel that way. But you know, who knows 20 years from now if you'll feel that way. Because uh, I think art uh, changes as the person changes because it's all interpretation, right? So, uh, you know, you'll change in 20 years. I'll change in 20 years. And, you know, we might look back and think that, uh, I don't know, that Spice World was the greatest film we ever reviewed. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Who knows? Who knows? But that's what I think happened with The Wicker Man for me. I bought the DVD without liking the movie that much a long time ago when it first came out. As did I, actually, coincidentally. Yeah. And I watched it again. And I liked it a little bit more. I've watched it several times since then, and I've really started to really fall in love with this movie. And the reason why I say that is it just has some of the most bizarre things going on in it. And I'll close out my review with what I was going to say about that. I do like the uh, the scene. I know you almost brought it up, the bottle of foreskins. Um, I wrote down in my yes. notes here, bottle of foreskins, anyone? As if you, know, <laughs> you, know, as if you need that to be labeled. Uh, you know, nice. <laughs> uh, I like that... Uh, when he goes on his search through the town for her, when he's had enough and he's going to search every house, that he just keeps walking into this, like we say, Kubrickian world of bizarre in- incidents. He just keeps walking into more and more bizarre stuff. And it just gets weirder and weirder to the point where he has to lay down. And then he lays down to take a nap, and that gets weird. And then he, you know, there's a, a, a mutilated hand for a candle, all kinds of fucked up shit going on. <laughs> And there's really no way to explain any of it. And you think this movie's it, it, this writer Anthony Schaefer, this director, they've they've all lost their mind. They, they they didn't know where they were going with this film, and they just kept going and going and going. And then you get to the last bit of the film, which is really really great. There's a bit of a twist, which I won't give away on here for anybody that hasn't seen it. But there's a great twist to the film uh, that is, I think, very well done. Uh, the first time I saw it, I didn't see it coming. I have to say, it's not very plausible uh, considering what's going on before then and whatnot, but. Again, once it's explained by Christopher Lee himself in the film, it, it it makes some sense, and it starts to kind of come clear. I just want to say, and I'll keep this very this review very short. I adore this film. Uh, I have a real fondness for it because I believe that it is one of the most unique. I don't mean great. I just mean most unique films ever made. I don't think you could make this film ever again. Now they tried to remake it, and I believe that that film will be a cult classic for a different reason in the future. Much like Showgirls. Yes, yes. Okay. Uh, and believe me, I do believe that the Wicker Man remake will be a cult classic at some point. The film is just off its fucking rocker, the remake I'm talking about as well, in a different way. But it is it is so gone <laughs> that uh, it's almost like they knew from the get-go that uh, remaking this was a bad idea. Let's just go for broke and try to make some kind of other odd film. And I have to believe that's the choice they made because it, the choices they make are just so insane in the remake. I don't understand a, a filmmaker of Neil LeBute's skill. I mean, he is a great, great filmmaker to make something that's this much of a train wreck who can make this many bad decisions. Mm-hmm. And he's, um, he's a great writer as well. And, you know, he wrote Oh, it yeah, well. he does stage work. He's a great writer. And it's just so badly written. The dialogue is terrible. And it's almost like he did it on purpose. I, well, that, I have to got- believe that because I was reading a review uh, from Cons of Antichrist, the Lars Ventura film. Oh, yes. And what I... A lot of critics are saying is that he made this film just to piss critics off. And maybe sometimes film, the film genre or film enthusiasts, maybe sometimes we need that. Maybe sometimes we need somebody to piss us off. And I think, I believe honestly, Von Trier believes that. And he actually 
has stated in an interview that he's the best filmmaker working today. You know, he's never been the one to be afraid of saying what he believes. <laughs> yeah, I think he's a, he's a bit arrogant. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, no, I don't know. I don't even want to. We, we can spend too much time getting into Von Trier. And his yes, but the point is, is that the, the filmmakers like Von Trier have to exist. Because if they don't exist, we have nothing to compare anything else to. It's great that uh, some people love uh, one of your, you know, the one of the people you don't care for, Steven Spielberg. It's great that people love the sentimentality that Spielberg brought to film in the 80s. Uh, it's great that people love the harshness that Kubrick brought to films in the 70s. Cold and sort of clinical. Yeah, very sterile, very, you know, very precise type filmmaking. It's great that we all love these different types of things. And it's also great to me that Robin Hardy made a film that I just do not believe. Out of, out of all the films that came out of the 70s, because the 70s was such a great decade for unique filmmaking. Uh, this is definitely one of the most unique films to come out of the 70s. Uh, I mean, you look and at that's the, saying something. Yeah, look at the films you got. You got Harold and Maude, which is a very interesting film. You got Brewster McCloud, from, uh, which I believe is in the 70s. I, I might be wrong there. But that's a Robert Altman film that nobody really sees. It's just a fucking weird movie. There's, uh, uh, um, I'm trying to think, Clockwork Orange, but Kubrick. That's a, just an odd film that I just don't think would ever get made now. These movies, that's the thing about the 70s that I appreciate more than anything, and, and, and world cinema in the 70s, is that movies were getting made uh, by grown people for grown people. Not Everything wasn't made for kids and families. And for business, art. Yes. It seems like the intersection of art and commerce, or art and, and business, was a lot yes. better, as opposed to this, this terrible business has completely taken over the art portion nowadays. Can you imagine trying to sell this movie nowadays? Forget it. They could not sell this movie. They couldn't sell it in 73. They sure as fuck couldn't sell it now. No. So that's what I appreciate the most about The Wicker Man and why I adore it so much is because I will tell you this. Any of you that have not watched the original Wicker Man, it is one of the most unique film experiences you'll ever have. That's that's pretty much my last thing there. I'll go ahead and kick it over to you to MVT and uh, make a break. Okay, I do want to say full disclosure to our good friend Christine. I wasn't all that excited about having to watch this film again because I've, I'd seen it twice before, once when I wasn't really at an age to appreciate it. And like Sammy said, I was thrown for a loop with the music and everything else. I was expecting a different film. The second time, I enjoyed it more. Um, but this time when I watched it, uh, I really, really dug it. So I do want to thank her for that, actually. It was, I'm glad she did because I have a newfound appreciation. Like Sammy said, you look at things in a different light uh, at different junctures in your life. Um, my make or break is, uh, I think it's a great scene between Lee and Woodward, the two sort of opposite ends of the spectrum, the two sort of uh, large figures that loom over everything on, on the island that's happening at this point uh, in the film. Uh, I think it's a great sort of exchange on their philosophies and everything else uh, and proves that they're good foils for each other. Uh, my MVT for the film is Woodward uh, versus sort of Summer Isle and their beliefs. I think it was a great... Nice. Uh, commentary on sort of uh, conservatism and um, the, the old way of thinking versus the new way of thinking. And mm-hmm. and uh, if you just look at it literally uh, in terms of the film, it's a great uh, a great thing. And his performance was great as sort of the very straightforward, rigid uh, man of his beliefs. Um, yes. So my score for the film is uh, an 8.25 out of 10. Nice. I think it's a really, really good film. That's a nice score. I like that. Uh, yeah, my, my MVT for the film, I'm going to go with the location. I just I love the location of the film. It really felt isolated. It really felt, uh, you know, it was beautiful, and it really felt like it was in another world. So I'm going to go with that. I do appreciate that you went with Edward Woodward, though, because I don't think that guy gets enough credit. Uh, he's a nice little uh, good character actor, so mm-hmm. I do appreciate that you went with that. That would have been my second choice. 
Uh, my make or break is going to be the reveal of the Wicker Man itself. I think that the first time I saw that, when Edward Woodard's reaction is so over the top, I think I laughed. Yes, yes. He's like, oh, God. Oh, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> and I laughed. But this time, again, this might have to do with the fact that I'm older. This time I kind of felt that his fundamental ways, he really felt that fear. Yes. of the wicker man itself and what it stands for and everything. So I really, really enjoyed that scene. I thought it was a great, powerful payoff. And the film, you're, this film really pays off. Yeah, it does. And you're absolutely right. I, again, find it very hammy and over the top at first, but it worked this time when I watched it. Yes, yes. My score for the film is going to be a solid 8 out of 10. I think this is a, I think a classic in a lot of ways. I think even if you don't like the the idea of pursuing this movie, I think you should check it out anyway because I think it's unique, like I said. It comes from a very deep place, obviously. Christopher Lee felt very fondly about this movie that he would do it for free, that everybody felt so compelled to make this film. I'm so glad it got made. I'm so glad it exists. It might not be the greatest film of all time, but I'm very, very happy that this film exists in this world. So that'll be my score for this movie. Uh, so that's our scores. That's our review. We hope you enjoyed it. We'll take a break and come back with some feedback. Ah, you kids today with your internet porn, discussion forums, and illegal movie torrents. At CinemaDiabolica.com, we've got something way better than all that. We've got overly opinionated, offensive commentary on films that we more than likely didn't pay for. I guess you could say it's like the entire internet all on one site. Except not. Yo, son, CinemaDiabolica.com is like the whole internet on one site. Except not. Holla. CinemaDiabolica.com Feedback. Ah, yes, the uh, beautiful sounds of uh, <laughs> hummingbirds and bluebirds this morning. I had to cut that short because it was becoming unbearable in my headphones. <laughs> wow, that is some intense, intense stuff that I don't care to ever listen to ever again. <laughs> yeah, what happened there was I needed a song and I just kind of went through some stuff I had and I had the, uh, the there's this animated show called Death Clock. I, th- I think it's called Death Clock or something. Oh, like yeah, yeah. You know, it's so funny you say that, Sammy, because I was going to say to you, um, that sounds like something from that show. I think that's the name because I've seen it a couple times. I think it's hilarious. Yeah, it is funny. And uh, the music borders on parody slash it's pretty good if you like that kind of stuff. So. I just had that, and I thought, you know what, I'm just going to put this in there because it's just insane. And so, yeah, you know, whatever. But I had to cut it short a little bit there because it got a little crazy there toward the end. So if you guys hear an abrupt stop, it's because my headphones, it was blowing my mind. Let's put it that way. Yeah, it was. It, I felt like Revoc was, was scanning me, and my head was going to explode. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like the first song I heard this morning, and I wasn't ready for that. <laughs> yeah, I've even had coffee, and I'm just like, my ears are bleeding, my nose... All right, so I'm glad we got a good laugh out of that. I, we got some uh, good feedback this week. We got uh, plenty of vo- uh, emails and plenty of voicemails. So uh, I guess I'll kick it over to you, and we'll get started on some email. 
Absolutely. The first one is from Ed in Boston, and he writes, would you like butter with your popcum? Nice. <laughs> Gentlemen, <laughs> hot butter popcum. Uh, Gentlemen, I've been listening to your show since day one, but haven't written it before now. Just wanted to tell you how much I love it, especially after your latest episode. It's so refreshing to hear movie fans on the internet praising Tarantino for a change. The whole time you guys were discussing Til- Kill Bill, I was just thinking, yes, yes, yes. Everything you guys said about that movie was absolutely right on. The music, the action, the dialogue, the cast. I could have listened to you guys talk about it for another hour at least. It's nice listening to people talk about Tarantino who understand what he's all about as a filmmaker and not just write him off as a talented guy who rips off other people's work. He takes stories and ideas you've seen before and breathes new life into them. At the same time, pays homage to his cinematic heroes and influences. The bottom line for me is that his films are a blast to watch and Kill Bill is just top-notch as uh, was your discussion. Like you, Willie, the only experience I've had with Malik is the Thin Red Line. And I have to say, the first time I saw it, I was bored to tears. However, I've seen it many times since it first came around, and now I love it. Uh, Badlands is one I've wanted to catch up with, but just hadn't gotten around to it. Your discussion of it was the first in-depth talk I've heard about the film and definitely piqued my interest. Well, I think I've gone on long enough here. Thanks for the show. Keep up the great work. Oh, and Sammy, more clutch, please. Head in Boston. <laughs> nice. Yes, I'll try to get more clutch in. I'm a big fan myself. Uh... Yeah, what he says about Tarantino is pretty much the way we feel, you know. Uh, damn the haters, really. Uh, the films are just a uh, fucking blast. And I'm glad, we've had a really good reaction to the Kill Bill episode, so we're very happy about that. Yeah, and, I, and I'm glad we've gotten a lot of feedback from people saying thank you for not taking the sort of typical, you know, online fanboy stance. Ooh, fuck Tarantino, he's a ripoff, and, yeah. and everything else. So I'm really happy that uh, and encouraged that there's as many Tarantino lovers out there as there are. It's a good thing. It's a good thing. Yes. I think it's a yeah. I don't know if there's anything else in his email I can remember talking about. I'll try to get more clutch in and uh, yes, uh, definitely check out Badlands. Yeah, I remember and, you said that. And let us know what you think. Yeah. Yes, let us know. Um, we only have let's see a couple more. Do you want me to keep reading, or do you want to go back and forth, or? Yeah, I guess I, I can read the one uh, the next one here. I can read it okay. from uh, the Lightning Bug. All right, the Lightning Bug. He says uh, his is titled "Like Mothers, Like Sons." <laughs> nice. Uh, greetings and salutations, gents. I just wanted to drop you a line and say how much I enjoyed last week's show. Let me start off to say that your mothers have some very fine taste in films. I could have listened to you fellows talk about Kill Bill for even longer. Yeah, seriously, longer. It is heartening to hear fans of Quentin's who really get what he's about. There's so much bashing of his appropriation of tasty nuggets from various genre films, and I have almost always considered it unfair. Like you said, Quentin is a film fan first and foremost, and it shows in his films. Needless to say, I thought it was a great review. And I hope someday you get a chance to cover my favorite QT film, Jackie Brown. I also can't wait to check out Badlands. I have only seen one of Malick's films, The New World, and I liked it very much. But Badlands sounds just like something I would love, so I want to send out out big shout-out to uh, Sammy's mom for bringing this one to my attention. Take, it, take care, guys, and I look forward to the rest of uh, Ladies Appreciation Month. Uh, your pal, The Lightning Bug. And, of course, you can uh, check out some of The Lightning Bug stuff at uh, thelightningbugslayer.com. And also he does, uh, I think he writes uh, reviews for uh, Cinema Day Bazaar as well. Absolutely he does. And I, I want to try to remember to uh, mention the bug because he's been a fan since uh, since the get-go. Yes, yes he has. So I apologize for that bug. It's just uh, we're idiots sometimes. I can't remember everything. And yes. All these blogs, all these other podcasts and everything that we got to try to remember to say, hey, thanks, guys. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, but uh, he does say, you know, again, this is another person who, you know, appreciates that we – Took the route we did with the Tarantino stuff, and then also 
Uh, he mentions that we uh, hopefully will cover Jackie Brown someday. I, you know, it's not on the schedule right now, but uh, never say never. Uh, you know, your name is in the hat for uh, listener content with the iTunes reviews and stuff sometimes. So, you know, if you ever win it, maybe we can uh, cover it for you, uh, Bug. But, uh, yeah, it's actually uh, one of my favorite QT films, if not my favorite. It's kind of kind of up in the air. I, I have a hard time deciding what's my favorite Quentin Tarantino film, I'll be honest with you. Every time I go back and watch one, I'm like, wow, you know, I like this one a lot more. I thought I liked that one. It's It's almost like picking your favorite child. Yes, exactly, exactly, exactly. No, I feel the same way. I, th- I think Jackie Brown's his most underappreciated film. Yes. yes. So I- I'd like to review it at some point. Yes, uh, and of course, you know, again, we talked about another person who's only seen uh, one Malick film and uh, uh, now hasn't seen Badlands, so hopefully they'll go check it out as well. So I'm glad we're turning people on to Badlands. It's a good thing. Yes, thank you, Mummy Samurai, and uh, make sure all of you call in with your thoughts on it once you've seen it, or you can write us, whatever is best for you. Whatever you want to do. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so the next one is from our good friend Kashmir, and I do want to say, Kashmir, I haven't forgotten about you. Uh, I will be emailing you back, uh, hopefully this weekend, with something uh, that Kashmir had requested from me personally. Um, the title is Quest for Inner Peace with Fulci and Cheese. Hello, Samo and Willow. I've been working like a dog and haven't had a chance to write you guys a simple email, let alone watch any movies. But now I'm sitting on the couch drinking coffee and starting to watch shitloads of movies. The Holy Stack That Lies Before Me, Burnett's Killer of Sheep, Fulci's Don't Torture a Duckling and Lizard and Woman's Skin, and The House by the Cemetery, Carpenters, Someone, Someone's Watching Me, and Fernando Baldi's Blind Man. Can you give me your thoughts about these, and specifically about Fulci's post-75 movies, when almost all of his movies had more gore and less story or logic? P.S. The Pusher Trilogy episode was awesome. You guys nailed it perfectly. More of those. And please put some spaghetti westerns on the show keep on trucking cashmere yes uh spaghetti westerns uh well fernando baldi's uh, blind man we actually are going to cover at some point so that's the good news there um actually i don't know when we'll cover it but it is on our schedule to cover so you have that to look forward to more spaghetti westerns i agree uh it's like one of my favorite genres if not my favorite genre of uh italian cinema and uh, we try to work as many of them in as possible, but then it gets to the point where we're like, yeah, but I really want to cover this. Yeah, but I really want to cover that. And, and so we try to get as many of them in as possible. Uh, but you know, it's hard to, it's hard to find time for all of this stuff we want to talk about. It is, but I think if, uh, Kashmir, if you look in our thread with the GGTMC coming attractions on that epic, about 75 trailer first page, <laughs> yes. you can spend a whole work day on there. Um, <laughs> you'll probably see both of us have picked some Westerns like, um, what do we have in there? I know I picked China Nine, Liberty Seven, which is a well, I guess it's sort of a spaghetti western. That's Monty Hellman. Uh, yeah, I think he did it for an Italian company. It's um, got Fabio Testi and, and Warren Oates. Mm-hmm. Uh, I picked that one. Um, we got, blind, got a couple in there yeah, too. Blind Sammy, Man in there. Yeah, Blind Man's in there. It seems like there's something else in there. But see, again, we have so much stuff on our schedule. I can't even remember everything we have. So no, I have to go to that thread all the time, which is a good thing because then I end up wasting time. Uh, sitting around watching trailers, which is always enjoyable. <laughs> yes. Uh, you want to know about Fulci's stuff. Uh, well, let me actually look here. Okay, so Carpenter's Someone's Watching Me. I know it was made for TV. It's it's okay. I mean, it's uh, it's made for TV, so that kind of tells you what you need to know. I think it's got um, Lauren Bacall and Adrian Barbeau, I think, in it. Uh, um, yeah. Is Faye Dunaway in that? I can't remember. No, did I say Faye Dunaway? I, th- I think you or did said, I say Lauren Bacall? You said Lauren Bacall. I think it's Lauren Bacall and Adrian Barbeau. I think you might be right. I know Adrian Barbeau's, and I can't remember if it was. You know, I could look it up, but I'm not going to. But 
I'm gonna try to go with my movie geek memory. <laughs> um, I do want to say Lizard and the Woman Skin. I've never seen Sammy. I don't know if you've seen it. I've never seen it actually. Believe it or not. Um, don't torture ducklings. It's a solid little film. I think it's a bit ridiculous in spots, but I mean, you got Barbara Boucher and Thomas Millian in it, so uh, Mark Perel. It's it's a decent film. A I think shout. I think what you just said is the perfect uh, thing that encapsulates all of Fulci, which is uh, it's a bit ridiculous in spots. Uh, Fulci, most of Fulci's films, in my opinion, are just they're they're good, but they're. They're ridiculous in spots all over the place. But uh, I, we do enjoy Fulci. We had a Fulci film covered, and we lost the audio on that one, unfortunately. But we're going to go back and do that. And that was his sword and sandal smoke machine epic known as Conquest. We'll definitely cover that again because we had, unfortunately, mm-hmm. we had a lot of fun talking about it, but we lost the recording. So Yeah, it's a good film. It is a good film. Uh, very quickly, his post-75 stuff, uh, Seven Notes in Black, is really good. Contraband is one we're actually going to be covering with OTC, it's a Euro crime film. His City of the Living Dead, I think, is a piece of shit. Um, I think it's got a couple good parts, but <laughs> some people like it, and it's kind of beyond me why they do. Yeah. Um, the Beyond, which is good. Uh, New York Ripper, I've never seen. And then you get into his post-apocalyptic stuff a little bit, which is pretty good. And then he's got one I've always wanted to see that I think has got a great title, Giallo a Disco. Yes. So, and then, in, then once you get into the late 80s and stuff, I, I'm not all that familiar with this stuff, so... It's, uh, let's just say sketchy, but hey, you know, uh, not all filmmakers can be great all the way. I mean, I don't even know any filmmakers that were great from beginning to end. Very difficult to be that. So, yes, I don't know. We'll cover more Fulci. We promise we, we, we do appreciate Fulci here. I mean, I'm not his biggest fan, but we enjoy quite a bit of Fulci. You know, he's got some good stuff that he brings to the table for sure. All right. Uh, now we have a email from Croc who hasn't written us in a while and has seriously made up for it. Uh, with with what can only be an epic email and you know we don't we don't really edit our emails around here so uh sit back and relax for a couple minutes as i read this email off here because this one's a long one and let's remember that croc is from uh vietnam and so uh he does a very good job on his english here uh there are some some phrases in here that i was kind of surprised when i overread it uh but i don't i'm just gonna read it word for word we'll just go for it and see what happens here all right he says uh the ggtmc kiss ass continues that's the title of his email uh, hello, Samurai and Big Willie Croc here. Well, I have to tell you, gentlemen, you have made the impossible thing again. It's now no mystery to you that I love Tarantino to death. Kurosawa is my favorite director of all time, and every new film from Scorsese is an event for me. But I just love QT. Here's the director I grew up with, and hopefully the director I'll grow old with. There's nothing anybody says that can make me love him less. I like that. The only thing negative about the man is he does not make movies enough. <laughs> Having said that, if all goes well, QT will work in the business for about 35 years more, which means we will have at least 10 or 12 films of his to chew on. I feel pretty good considering. I consider Kill Bill 1 and 2 is a masterpiece of uh, modern cinema, and I thought my love for this film would and could never change. I was wrong. You made me love it even more. I have listened to the last uh, two episode, uh, episode two times already, and I just want to say thank you, thank your moms, thank my mom and the Academy. You guys did a fantastic <laughs> job talking about the film with such love and passion, with thorough analysis and interesting trivia. It was just a ble- uh, uh, a blessing for me. Uh, watching the movie is pretty awesome, but talking, and in this case listening to you guys discussing it, just adds another value to my experience. You know what, Big Willie? I just hope your mom would call in again and request a review of Kill Bill 2 immediately, but I guess I will have to wait until next year. Listening to the show the second time, I noticed that you guys had discussed it for about an hour, more or less, and covered a bunch of stuff but there are still tons of awesome things you left out. 
Uh, trust me, Croc, we know that. <laughs> and uh, that's the mark of a rich film for me. For example, Kill Bill Volume 1 is often remembered as action-packed, while excuse me, Volume 2 is more QT-like with characters setting and talking with each other. But I think we can still find a lot of witty dialogue in the first one. Like Jim Smith shows us in his book about the director, it is the case of Bill's explanation that nothing sadistic in his actions towards the bride in the prologue. Oh, there's nothing sadistic in his actions. What he means is that he takes no pleasure in killing the bride. It's just something that he thinks he has to do. Indeed, what he's trying to tell is his actions are, in fact, masochistic. Uh, it actually pained me him to cause pain to someone who has worked for him, who he cares for, and who has been his lover. This and the Superman speech in Volume 2 just tell us so much more about Bill. He has the pride to keep. That's why he must kill her. He has the pride to keep. That's why he let her live. That's why he waits for her to come to him, expecting the worst case could happen. Brilliant. I also agree with Sammy that Quentin is the best storyteller at the moment. And you know what? Roger Ebert agrees with you, too. He's actually said that. He's actually said, uh, I guess, the following here. He's got a quote. Uh, or as uh, Chris over at OTC likes to say, parenthetically, uh, the movie is all storytelling but no story. And that I, I've been wanting to use that ever since Chris started saying that because he, I love that he says that. It's like his, it's like his catchphrase, parenthetically. Uh, uh, the movie is all storytelling but no story. And that non-story taking place in a parallel universe in which all of this makes sense in the same way that the superhero's origin story makes sense. There you go. I mean, kudos to Mr. Ebert. Uh, I'll talk about that more in a second. Uh, there's a long tracking, uh, tracking shot at the beginning of the House of Blue Leaves arc that I really like where the camera rises and falls in a ridiculously complicated manner showing almost the whole house and gives us a really sense of, a really good sense of space. That shot is as good as the Copacabana shot in Goodfellas for me. It's a good comparison, actually. Yeah. I think a copycat will never be able to pull that off. In fact, I think not many direct, great directors in the world today can pull off what QT achieved in this film. And like you mentioned, gentlemen, he loves to pay tribute to his cinematic heroes and dares to use them in his movies, even if they're virtually unknown to general audiences. That takes big balls, really. About David Carradine, I have never seen him before, and I don't care if I will see him in a, wor- uh, in, in a worth-watching movie later. But Bill will always be one of the most heroic, awesome, love-to-hate villains. I also have watched Badlands for the first time. I have heard about Malik for a long time and what a genius he is. I have the Criterion Edition of Days of Heaven for years now, but I have never pushed myself to watch a Malik film before until last week. And what a discovery it was. I will not talk about it anymore here. just want to thank you for your <clears throat> excuse me, great show. Discovering new territories of cinema is what I love the most about GGTMC. I guess I have kissed enough asses for today. Big Willie and Samurai, tell your moms to call me more often. In fact, let's just bring the whole family to the show. I love it. With uh, Kill Bill, Tarantino has said he opted to give the audience shit they can't even believe they're seeing. Well, I just hope with Inglorious Bastards he will add some more. <laughs> I don't know what this is an interesting phrase. Well, I guess I just hope with Inglorious Bastards he will add some more fart to that. <laughs> I think maybe he meant to write heart. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I hope so. <laughs> Either way, that is awesome. Uh, bring it on, Quentin. In 2003, Uma Thurman did Kill Bill. In 2009, the Bastards Will Kill Nazis. <laughs> That's Croc from Vietnam. He says adios. All right. So, as you can see, he had a lot to say. <laughs> but I'm glad. And, again, I just, it never ceases to amaze me when Croc writes in that uh, someone whose English is not their first language can put together such a well-thought-out uh, email with such great cinematic references. Um, when he mentioned the House of Blue Leaves thing, I'm going to give you a breather here for a sec, Sammy, so I'm going to talk for a minute. Thank you. <laughs> um, when he mentions the House of Blue Leaves segment where the, where the, the camera's swirling around, that was something that I mentioned that I thought was impressive because that was the part that I said reminded me of sort of an, of an Argento, 
just that it was constantly swirling around and really, really good camera work there. Um, he mentioned the part about um, Bill being masochistic. Again, you know what? There were so many notes about this film that you and I just couldn't have mentioned everything. I mean, we could have spent seven, eight hours on this film talking about uh, their influences, the references, Easter eggs, everything, and still not covered everything. So, I mean, it's inevitable, guys, that we're not going to be able to get in, get everything in. Um, and, in fact, another, another thing you're going to see here with some voicemails is some people... But it seems like no one listened when I said I watched the Japanese cut this time and you watched the American cut. Because mm-hmm. everyone's like, I don't know if you guys know this, but it was <laughs> yeah. a Japanese cut and uh, there's this wrong, or this is different, this is different. Um, but I guess we'll address that as it comes up in uh, in voicemails. But, Croc, thank you for that. And, um, as always, we're glad that you, um, you enjoy the show so much. Uh, and uh, let us know if you've seen that Vietnamese... Um, action film that I, I had mentioned to you, The Rebel. Yes, um, yes. Yeah, let us know. And uh, beyond that, uh, I don't really have anything else to say except to hope you keep enjoying the show. Yes, definitely, and keep writing in. Uh, I will say the thing you said about Roger Ebert, uh, that is true. Uh, I've read that before. Uh, that is Tarantino in a nutshell to me, that he uh, he doesn't even really have stories so much, but as much as he knows how to tell a story is the key. You know, it's, a great story is only as good as the person who tells it. And uh, Tarantino can take a bare-bones plot, which if you really think about Kill Bill, it's a very bare-bones plot. It's very just, it's pretty much just a, just a revenge film. That's all it is. But he manages to make it very deep, and he kind of plays with you. He kind of tosses you around like a cat would, like a little toy. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And uh, that's what he does genius like. And I will say that we probably will move Kill Bill 2 up into our queue at some point because a lot of people really want us to cover part two. I happen to – this is interesting for you that don't know this, but uh, for you guys that don't know this, uh, Large William uh, is a, f- a huge fan of Volume 1, which I like quite a bit. And uh, it's a part, it's his favorite film. He's mentioned that. Uh, Kill Bill Volume 2 is not my favorite film, but it is one of my favorite films. Uh, I like Volume 2 more than I like Volume 1. Large William likes Volume One more than he likes Volume Two. It's 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 an interesting, uh, uh, you know. I'm trying to look for the right word. It's I think it's an interesting examination of <clears throat> where uh, some of our cinematic tastes lie um, beyond sort of overall. In that, I have a little bit of a leaning to Asian cinema, as people know. You have a bit of a leaning to Westerns, as people know. And I think the conventions within each film are uh, Asian mishmash. Spaghetti Western mishmash. That is correct. So you guys can see a lot of the personalities of the gentlemen coming through in both those films. So it's kind of interesting. We actually had this conversation before we ever started recording the show. So uh, mm-hmm. it's interesting. So we might move Volume 2 in there someday. If we just feel like watching it, uh, we might move it in there. It'll be fun, and I'm sure it'll be another epic episode. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that I can guarantee. Okay, so we got some voicemail here. So I think we got about five of them. So I'll start playing those now. Here we go. Hi, gentlemen. This is Uwe calling from uh, sunny Munich. And um, let me say one thing. It's really nice to hear you talk about movies I've never seen before. But it's even more nicer if you talk about movies I really love. So we're talking of uh, Kill Bill, of course, and I really love the episode. Although I think it wasn't such a... Uh, didn't do uh, good for Badlands that it was in the same episode with uh, Kill Bill because uh, it's a great movie, but it was almost wasted there because um, um, you see, uh, um, talking about the Kill Bill, this has put uh, Badlands a little bit in the shadows. <laughs> so you see how important Tarantino is for today's movies, uh, even though maybe because 
he's not appreciated by everyone. So, um, as you probably guess right now, I really love um, Kill Bill. Um, first noticed uh, Tarantino when Pulp Fiction came out, and I loved that. But but then he really topped it with, with Kill Bill. It's my favorite movie, the first part, of course. Um, I like a little bit better than the second part, uh, but overall, it's my my favorite Tarantino movie until today. Um, Inglorious Bastards still to come. <laughs> So uh, you were talking about the music in Kill Bill and how Tarantino puts artists in a complete different context. Um, I've got to add one thing to that. Um, George Sumphier, he's the guy who's playing the, the pan flute, and my parents listen to that guy all the time, and I totally despised him. I uh, really hated that, that music. They got one record they played over and over again, and I found it totally stupid but um then if you listen to the soundtrack of Kill Bill, uh, it really fits in perfectly and it gives a very um a special mood and uh, suddenly you appreciate songs you you had it before and that's really uh, something only tarantino can do i read somewhere that uh, he's like a, a, a dj who's mixing one layer of sound over the other until he gets his very own sound so um you could also say, I think, uh, he's simply doing the films that you always wanted to see, and you sit there and think, I can't believe there's another guy who knows exactly what I love, and he's showing it on the screen. So that's really great. Well, um, another thing you was mentioned in the in the um, re, uh, in the uh, from the listeners, uh, the feedback from the listeners was uh, Lena Wettmüller. Um, I just wanted to say a short thing. Uh, she's a very politically motivated filmmaker, although there are some elements of surrealism and, and comedy in their in her movies. That's a very impressive mixture mixture she's putting together there. Um Love and Anarchy, maybe her best movie. And the music in this one, so to give you a, another reason to watch it maybe. The music in there is from uh, Nino Rota who's um also who also did the score um of the Godfather part one, as you surely know. And finally, I got a question for this week. Uh, it's about Kill Bill, of course. I bought a Japanese DVD where the fight scene in the House of Blue Leaves is in full color, not in black and white. Do you know that version, or what do you think of it? If you've seen it, and um, example number one, <laughs> Tarantino probably Tarantino probably think that this version is more appropriate for Asian viewers, or why did he uh, put out two versions of that? So that's all for today. Um, and thanks very much for the lovely Kill Bill and Badlands episode. Bye-bye. All right. Uva from uh, sunny Munich. Uh, yeah, there, that's example number one of uh, somebody, didn't pay, somebody didn't hear that uh, Large William would have watched the Japanese cut. So, <laughs> Yeah, because the difference between the two is that the beginning of the, the – uh, I think I even mentioned this, but the beginning of the well, – then again, we talked for so long, I'm sure people forgot um, – <laughs> The the North American one says the beginning the whole the revenge is a dish bester of cold whereas the Japanese cuts one that says this is dedicated to master filmmaker Kenji Fukusaku. Right, right. Uh, also, he mentioned Zamfir. Yes, when I was growing up, uh, there were infomercials on all the time for Zamfir and his fucking pan flute, and uh, it used to drive me insane. Okay, uh, but that's the thing Tarantino does. He takes kitschy, campy stuff that you would not even look twice at. It makes you actually kind of similar to what we try to do on this show. He makes you think about it for a second. You know, I mean, like we've talked about, genre cinema gets a bad rep because, you know, it isn't really noticed by the Academy Awards, things like that. I mean, it is kind of, but not the kind of genre cinema we talk about. Uh, we just want people to go back and actually look at that stuff because, you know, 
the, there's true filmmaking in these films, regardless of how cheap, how sleazy, how whatever they are. Uh, I think Tarantino does the same thing with music. I think he finds a way. If you would have told me Zamfir would have been in Kill Bill, I would have told you, oh, God, that's the worst choice of all time. <laughs> but uh, yeah. he manages to make it work. And I even I think I even closed the show out with some Zamfir, I believe, the Lonely Shepherd there. Yeah. And uh, I remember hearing fucking Zamfir's flute <laughs> in my ears uh, as a youngster as well. And I just think he was so ridiculous that his flutist hit it big. I never could understand that. But yeah, Tarantino, you know, you you always think his stuff, his choices are far out there until you see how well they work. And, and that continues because, uh, you know, the one track everybody keeps talking about in Glorious Bastards that he has in there is the uh, the David Bowie song uh, that uh, has no way in any retrospect ca- can you fit that into a World War II movie. But I guarantee you he'll find a way. I can't remember the name of the song off the top of my head. Now. I, think it's called, I can't remember what it's called. Cat Power maybe? I don't know. Yeah, Cat People? I don't know. I don't know, something like that. But I can't remember. Uh, I'm not the world's biggest Bowie fan. but Nor am I. Yeah, so I mean, uh, I'm amazed that that song's even in there. He's got a lot of Marconi from everything, from a lot of different Marconi films, from some of his, I think from some of his romantic stuff. And, and it's hard to, some people have asked me on the boards, you know, where's this Marconi stuff from? Guys, you're going to have to do research. Marconi scored like, I don't know, 300-something films, I think. <laughs> well, yeah, he did a lot of <clears throat> Italian films from romantic sex, com- or sex comedies to romantic films to Eurocrime to Giallos. I mean, he's done a lot of work. so A lot. <laughs> it's hard to kind of find. That's like finding a needle in a haystack. Yep, exactly. All right. Well, thanks, though. thanks for the voicemail, though. We'll uh, continue to... Uh please you we hope all right so yes got another voicemail here this is a long one i'll just give you guys an idea this is five minutes long here i don't even know, remember who this one's from but we shall find out hey will and sam uh this is brian sauer from los angeles um yes, brian. just uh listening to the uh, killing bill and the badlands show G- great stuff um i heard you read my voicemail uh, which was really or i'm sorry my email which was really cool um i figured you guys were um, already fans of uh, Fernando DeLeo and stuff like that, just from what I'd heard. And, and since I've sent that email, I've listened to like five more shows and gotten more of a sense of, you know, what, what you guys are into. And I would <laughs> I would barely have even asked that question, but I'm really excited that you guys are uh, are, are going to do Manhunt on the show. That's going to be awesome. And I have seen the other two films in the trilogy, and um, it's, it's a tough call between Manhunt and Wipeout as my favorite one. But anyway, I'm I'm psyched for that. But just wanted to. Um, give some unabashed love to the show uh vocally um uh, right now i i just got um i ordered raiders of atlantis hands of steel and live like a cop die like a man nice. um and they just came in the mail last night so i'm gonna probably check those out this weekend all thanks to you guys good stuff um i also queued up like my netflix is all gentlemen's at the top right now because <laughs> i think uh they call me Trinity, uh, Ten to Midnight, Cry of a Prostitute, and um, uh, Breakheart Pass, which I had been meaning to see forever. Um, and you guys pushed me over the top as far as needing to see that, especially with the, uh, the Ed Lauder love, because um, <laughs> I am a huge, huge Ed Lauder fan. Awesome. Um, I think I was first introduced to him in... <laughs> Embarrassingly enough, and girls just want to have fun because my <laughs> my two younger sisters used to rent that all the time, and he was uh, Sarah Jessica Parker's military dad, if I recall, in that movie. But m- one of my favorites is Death Wish Three. I'm sure you guys have talked about that in one of the shows. I'm going to go back through all the shows, so I'm sure I'll hear you talk about that. But Death Wish Three is just 
and Bronson. Oh, fucking amazing movie. Um, <laughs> I, I, I must have watched my tape of that movie just into the ground when I was uh, younger. Um, I was going to just say uh, on the Ed Lauder line, just watched uh, my old VHS of uh, 315, The Moment of Truth, which was another one I've been meaning to see forever with Adam Baldwin and... Um, uh, what's her name from Valley Girl? Um, Deborah Foreman, and a whole bunch of people. Um, and I was saying to my wife, I was like, God, it'd be great if they they should really screen this movie. And then the the New Beverly, the place I mentioned last in my email, um, I guess they're doing a screening of Class of 1984 and 3:15 uh, next month, which is pretty exciting. Um, I just never have heard of that movie screening, but Ed Lauder's in it as a cop, and he's just loudering it up just great stuff awesome. um, but I just wanted to mention quickly one movie that uh, he's in that maybe you guys haven't seen or maybe you have uh, called Hickey and Boggs you know what I'll bet you guys have seen it it's with Bill Cosby and Robert Culp directed by Culp detective story script by um, Walter Hill I think um, not, there's a crappy DVD out there but I'm sure that uh, maybe you guys could find a better quality copy somewhere but that's that's one I'd love to hear you guys talk about on the show um, and in the vein of that sort of great 70s movies that I love, um, Payday with um, uh, Rip Torn. Uh, you know, he's like a country western singer, sort of a day in the life of him, um, pretty gritty. Um, but man, it's a great, great movie. Um, I think I saw it as a double feature with Cisco Pike with uh, Chris Christopherson um, many years ago, but it's on DVD. And Payday, it's just become one of my favorite movies of all time. I really think, having listened to a few more shows, that you guys would absolutely love it if you haven't seen it. Um, but um, in closing, sorry, getting carried away, um, really, Doug, that you guys were talking about Hawk the Slayer and Yore, um, two um, films I haven't seen. I had just shown my 10-year-old uh, Crawl about three weeks ago. I think you were talking about that in the same show, and uh, and that <laughs> I forgot how much fun that movie is, especially with the ten year old in the room. I mean, he he loved it. So I think we're going to move on to Hawk the Slayer. I just got that from Netflix, also, and then Your is a little trickier, but I'm going to get that too. Um, it'll be a great group of films to watch. Anyway, um, sorry with for the long winded message, but uh, I really love the show. You guys know your stuff, and uh, uh, in a big way, like. It's really remarkable how sharp you guys are as far as the genre stuff. I'm, I'm extremely impressed, and I consider myself pretty well-versed. So um, anyway, thank you so much for the show. Um, like I said, easily my favorite show right now. I'm going to go through all of them, and uh, I'm going to continue listening and probably calling. Um, but thanks again, guys. Bye-bye. All right, that was Brian from, uh, I think he said Los Angeles, right? Yeah, he had to have said Los Angeles, I think it. <clears throat> yeah, because I think he talked about the new Beverly, I believe. Yeah, which oddly enough, it's funny. Uh, our good buddy Miles, who uh, does show show, uh, he keeps me informed of any uh, any uh, new Beverly screenings and things. He always rubs that in. So if you're listening, Miles, thanks for rubbing it into the open wound. He likes to let me know when they show these great genre films, and uh, I'm not there to see them. <laughs> yes. He had so much to talk about in his voicemail. I don't know if you caught everything or not, so we'll try to catch I, as much of it as we could. Well, I caught the things I, I had meant to address. Um, thanks for the kind words, first of all. And Brian's on the boards now. Is Rupert Pupkin. Oh, that, course, is, little, is that Brian? Oh, awesome. Nice. Yes, little Marty reference with a little Copel. I think he has Cole, um Doesn't he have Hackman in the conversation as his avatar? Uh, yes, I believe he does. Sure, and uh, let me just add that I think Rupert Pupkin is maybe the greatest film character name of all time. It is a great name. <laughs> Um, he, it, it's really funny. He mentions 
uh, Hickey and Boggs. Hickey and Boggs is a film that uh, I can't remember how I heard about it now. I think on a blog or something about a year, year and a half ago. And I've been trying to track down. And I guess if I was absolutely sort of locked in on getting it, I could. But I've never really come across it easily. Um, and it's one that I've always wanted to see. I think it, it looked really interesting. Maybe Hans told me about it. I can't remember. Um, but, uh, yeah, so that's a film I, I haven't seen and I want to see. I don't know if you've seen it, Sammy. Have not want to see it, so maybe yes. maybe sometime in the future we'll do it on the show. I don't know. And Payday with uh, good old Rip Torn, he, that film has been at the top of my Amazon list and been in my Zip, which is like the Canadian Netflix. Uh, it's been in, near the top of my queue on both for a very long time, and I, I'm sure I'll enjoy it. And I think I'd asked you, Sammy, when I first heard about it, if you'd seen it um, because it sounded really, really good. Yeah, and I don't, I don't ever recall seeing it actually. I, it's one of those films that I've all, it's you know, it's on that queue of mine that, like, oh yeah, I've always meant to see that, and I just, I keep forgetting about it, keep forgetting about it, keep forgetting about it. So maybe I need to make a note and get a hold of that damn thing. <laughs> yes, but uh, Brian, thank you for, uh, or should I say, Rupert, thanks for the kind words, and you know, by all means, stay on the board, stay lively, and and call in and write in whenever you want. Um, it's always much appreciated. Yes, and he uh, talked about uh, Manhunt and uh, Wipeout and those films. We're actually, and, you know, I think in retrospect, I think he probably knows now that we actually are covering the trilogy. Uh, first show after we finished the Ladies Appreciation Month, we're actually recovering the whole trilogy. So uh, we just thought, you know, what the hell? We we like to cover trilogies anyway, and uh, so we're going to cover the whole thing. Also, he mentioned Death Wish Three. Uh, I'd like to do the Death Wish movies at one point. Uh, you know, there's more than three, but obviously we'd probably do a trilogy show, one, two, and three, and then we'd probably maybe at some point in the future do four and five. And there's really no need to do four and five. They're pretty awful. Uh, three, three is actually an interesting film because some people think it's one of the worst films ever made. Me, I think it's just one of the most bizarre films ever made when you get a old folks, uh, apartment building and they all turn vigilante and, uh, it's just, it's just off the fucking, I don't even know what you say off the chain. I'm trying to be hip. <laughs> yeah, off its fucking rocker, more like it. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 an insane movie, and it is the perfect example, in my opinion, of how video games have been influenced by films as opposed to films being influenced by video games. Because there's a lot of scenes in Death Wish Three where Bronson's running through <clears throat> debilitated New York, you know, because this is sleazy New York. And he's hiding behind a wall, and he stops, and he shoots somebody, and he falls off a thing. It looks like a first-person shooter, I swear to God. And I've watched it a couple times because AMC has been showing it quite a bit, and I'll have it on in the background when I'm doing schoolwork and stuff because I can't do my schoolwork without a little bronzing going on. So there we go. And, uh, yeah, that's about all i got to say. I mean, again, Miles keeps me informed of the new Beverly and stuff. Uh, you should look Miles up if you're out there in L.A. Uh, guy's a, a fountain of information himself. So, All right. I think we got some, yeah we got more voicemail we still got quite a few more here let's uh, go ahead and yeah keep calling in the voicemails guys All right, here we go next hey gentlemen it's uh, Miles speak of and, the devil um, you know it's been a while since I called I totally forgot how uh, how laid back Rick sounds on the um, on the voicemail line oh yeah it's pretty great <laughs> anyway um, I'm just calling because you guys reviewed Alice Sweet Alice uh, a little while back now I guess. And I've been meaning to call, like I said, but, uh, you know, stuff happens. And, um, yeah, we, we watched that, um, I guess it was last Halloween for the spooktacular thing. And um, Katie and I were similarly disturbed by the uh, the comment made by the police officer who, uh, who notices uh, Alice's breasts, I guess. But what we found out, I think, she was uh, something like 18. She was legal 
when they made the movie, which made me feel better because I remember looking at her shapely bottom, let's just say, and um, thinking, I kind of wish you were a little bit older. Even though she's she's totally bizarre looking, but she had a really nice, sweet can. Uh, anyway, that's uh, I guess that's all I had to say. I just wanted to call up and tell you how nice Alice's ass was in Alice, Sweet Alice. That's a thing to do, right? Anyway, um, you know, I love you guys and I love the show and just keep up the spectacular work. People always say good work. I'm going to say spectacular. All right, I'll talk to you guys later. Bye. All right, that was one Milius Miles from the show show. Hey, uh, he mentioned uh, Alice's Sweet Can. I've been thinking ever since he's sent that voicemail, all I can ever call Alice Sweet Alice anymore is Alice's Sweet Ass. <laughs> That's all I can call it anymore. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. I think uh, Miles might be into the odd-looking women. Hey, you know, there's somebody for everybody, buddy. <laughs> yes, everybody needs somebody to love. <laughs> exactly. Uh, yes, we love that. We love that guy. Uh, and you will be hearing him on the GGTMC next month. We uh, hope. So, all right. Yeah, we got to do planning. Uh, you know, these these shows are they got to do logistical planning to get uh, get on shows, to get guests on shows. It's amazing how much work goes into that. <laughs> oh yeah. All right. Next voicemail. Hey guys, uh, JD again. Just wanted to touch base. I called in a few weeks ago just to to thank you guys for the show. Wanted to touch base. I got a twenty pack of movies. Happened to run across it. Yeah. In the uh, 20 pack was in a Fulci, one or two Fulci films, um, and then like some original Night of the Living Dead and just some good stuff uh, that you guys had recommended. Deep Red, I can't remember the other ones anyway. I'll get back to you on that. Uh, number two, you guys had mentioned Beastmaster. Uh, that might be a fun review if you guys are going to do that. I know you mentioned you might. Uh, I still get a kick out of it when they're standing on a temple. <laughs> Somebody suggests that they must fight, and then the one guy in the back, you can just hear him real vaguely say, We must flee! <laughs> I don't know why that makes me laugh so hard, but it does every time. <laughs> number two, you guys bring up, or number three, you guys bring up uh, movies from, from when I was a kid and uh, a latchkey kid and had cable, and uh, about all I did was watch cable. So uh, I ran across Crossroads. Not the Britney Spears Crossroads, but the Ralph Macchio Crossroads in my video, video store the other day. Got super excited, took it home. Um, and you, you might be surprised it doesn't quite hold up. Uh, <laughs> it's just my opinion. Uh, but but the, the showdown with Jack Butler, Steve Vai, uh, is a, still pretty awesome. Um, Jamie Gertz looks kind of hot in a 1980s sort of way. I agree. So... Anyway, just wanted to touch base with you guys. Still love the show. Thank you for turning me on to to, to Fulci and, and stuff like that. And so, uh, appreciate it. Take care. All right, JD, hadn't heard from him a little bit. It's good to hear from him. Uh, yeah, he brings up um, Crossroads. It's a Walter Hill film. Yeah, like a lot of Walter Hill's films, they're very his '80s stuff is very '80s. I mean, even if you look at Forty Eight Hours, the dialogue holds up, but the film definitely has an '80s feel, to say the least. Uh, yes. He. Uh, what else did he mention? Oh, the twenty packs. Uh, let me tell you something about these these twenty packs and these fifty packs and everything else. I'm a huge fan of these things because they put stuff on there that is is next to impossible to find or stuff I haven't even heard of before. And uh, for a movie geek like me, and I think Large William will agree with this, when you grab a twenty or a fifty pack and you see stuff on there you've never heard of, 
then uh, that's a, they're doing you a service, in my opinion. Even if the quality is not great, they're still doing us a service by putting the stuff out. Yes. <clears throat> Sorry, did I cut you off? No. No, you did not. <laughs> uh, yes, and Sammy actually gave me a nice drive-in one for Christmas. Um, there's a great Grindhouse releasing. I think it's the Grindhouse ex- – not Grindhouse releasing, I should say. Sorry. The Grindhouse Experience has mm-hmm. a few box sets out. Yes. And they have stuff like Striker, Raiders of Atlantis, uh, Three Tough Guys, uh, Highway Racer. They have a lot of really good stuff on there. So um, they have a, a uh, Terrence Hill film with his, his real-life son in it called Renegade. So some good stuff in there, and those are good bang for your buck. Yeah, they also have a Terrence Hill film in there called Carthage in Flames, which is a Roman oh, yes. film, which I watched about 20 minutes of. And let me just say, guys, thank God Terrence Hill started making spaghetti westerns. <laughs> yeah, I heard, uh, I think you told me it was pretty bad. <laughs> pretty fucking bad. Uh, yes, with model boats sinking in a sink, which the Italians love to do. You know, we saw Raiders of Atlantis, and we had the, you know, sink water falling over the thing, so... <laughs> All right, so we got one last voicemail here, and thanks for the call in. Keep calling in, JD. We uh, we appreciate it. And if we've turned you on to Fulci, awesome man. Because if you've never really gotten into any Fulci, uh, even though I'm not the world's biggest fan of him, I can imagine now never seeing a Fulci and just getting into Fulci. That would be pretty insane. Because <laughs> he's uh, he's uh, he's the one he's one filmmaker. I will say this for I think he was slowly losing his mind as he got older. <laughs> That's all I'm going to say. No no offense to him. I just think he was losing it. <laughs> all right. Uh, last voicemail is from, uh, uh, well, let's just call him a sexy beast. Here we go. Yo, what up? It's Matthew Zaka. Just got to listen to the Kill Bill review. It was very awesome. Very awesome hour of Kill Bill. Yes. Um, I was very happy to hear, hear, hear that uh, it's your favorite film, Willie. I think it's a very awesome movie. It's not my favorite film, but it's definitely one of them. And uh, I think it's phenomenal. It actually is my girlfriend's favorite film, which is pretty cool because uh, she'll definitely be listening to the episode soon she'd been kind of asking me she's like did you listen to the episode yet did you listen to the episode yet i'm like no i haven't but i think she'll be very happy to hear it maybe i can get get her to call in but uh, we'll see um (laughs) (coughs) nice sorry about that um just clearing to come out of my throat oh god damn it um also uh, i want to bring up double dare the movie with zoe bell that kind of leads up to her being in kill bill or being casted in kill bill is a really cool documentary on her and uh, her kind of rise in her career. And uh, uh, she meets up with, uh, I think her name's Jeannie Epper. I think that's how you say it. She kind of meets up with her, and then uh, she's kind of, like, getting old, and it's kind of like a parallel between the two. It's a really cool movie, and uh, it's awesome when uh, Zoe Bell is trying out for Kill Bill, and Ewan Wolping is there, and then all of a sudden, you know, Tarantino kind of comes over and starts talking to her, and it's just like, I don't know, it's like a goosebump feeling because you just know that that's leading into such a fantastic movie, as it turns out. Um, but yeah, really good documentary on stunt women or stunt people, period. Um, also, I want to add that if you've ever seen the Japanese version of Kill Bill, it's really cool. So I think it's example number two. If it ever, you know, whenever it comes out as the two movies together and all unedited and everything, it'll be the whole bloody affair thing. Um, but the Japanese Kill Bill Volume 1 version is really awesome because it doesn't, the black and white scene is not black and white, it's in color, and there's probably about maybe like 30 to 40 more seconds or so left, or extra of deaths, and the deaths are fucking badass. Um, and then there's an, the ending when uh, you hear Sophie Fatal kind of being tortured in the background when she's talking to Bill. Um, 
you actually see some of that stuff, and it's fucking oh, it's so dope. It's when I watched, it, I was like, "Wah!" screaming, and like, I can't believe how awesome this is. Like, like I, I love the the uh, you know the theatrical release that had come out, but this one just kind of was like that little extra jolt of awesomeness because it was just stuff that you hadn't seen, you didn't expect it either. Um, so yeah, get that and watch it. It's pretty fucking sick. Uh, that's all I got. Peace. Hey, he called back. I Yo, it's me again. <laughs> Matsuzaka, that is. Um, I want to add one more thing because I had forgot to mention it, but uh, had, I think what you had said your make or break scene was a scene with Sonny Chiba, and that is actually like definitely one of my favorite parts of the movie. Um, it's like it's major goosebump inducing. Uh, just the fucking music in that line where he says, um, "You know, God will be cut." It's it's unbelievable. Um, the pan flute, the Zamfir master, of the pan flute music <laughs> is fucking so great, and it's even better because. Like, it's, like, this kind of calm, beautiful song, and it's, like, the calm before the storm, yes. and just that whole scene is just, ugh, it's fucking amazing! <laughs> that's all I want to say. I figured I'd mention that, because that part is so great, and then it leads into the even greaterness that happens later that's even greater than great. Word. <laughs> all right, that was Matsuzaka, who always is an adventure when he calls in. Uh, yes, uh, everything he said we agree with, obviously. I'm glad, uh, you know, again... Uh, Large William did watch the Japanese cut, guys. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, I own I own both cuts. Yes. So, but yeah, everything he said, uh, we totally agree with. We are, uh, you know, as always, we are huge fans of Quentin Tarantino, and I will uh, until he fails me. I will continue to say that he's the best storyteller working today. Well, even even after he fails me, because everyone misfires, I'll still oh, be yes. a staunch supporter. You're right about that. Everybody misfires, guys. Everybody. Marty Coppola multiple times. Everyone, you name someone. I mean, they've they all misfired. But um, some would say, to... some would say Terrence Malick hasn't misfired yet. But he's only made four films, so you know, let's give it some time, guys. That's like saying someone's batting a thousand. Well, yes. <laughs> you know, you got to kind of play a few games, take a few pitches. But no, I agree. Uh, from what I've seen, uh, half of his filmography. Now, I, I enjoyed it, but I do want to. I keep we, we keep forgetting to mention that Matsuzaka does some really good work over at the Paris Cinema Blog. He's been reviewing films with uh, a lot of wit and humor um, that I think needs to be mentioned and get some praise because he's been doing some good stuff over there. So check him out, guys. Yes, definitely check him out. He is uh, very good. Uh, he has a way with words that is quite unique, <laughs> uh, which if you know anything about his voicemails, you know what we're talking about. So that is all of our feedback. Uh, I want to try to keep uh, our thank yous uh, kind of short here. Uh, make sure to check out popsyndicate.com, the forums. All the good shows over there, sister shows, whatnot, all the good friends we have over there. Uh, Destroy the Brain. Uh, I'm not even going to mention the website. Just look them up. Destroy the Brain, Chinstroker vs. Punter, Mondo Movie, The Hollywood Saloon's back. We can start mentioning them again. So check out these guys. Uh, also, Cinema Day Bazaar for all your hard-to-find cinema needs. Check and, them of course, out. the code is GENTLEMAN. Yes, of course. And uh, I'm trying to think of some other stuff here. Paracinema, Paracinema.net, great magazine. Make sure to check that out. Uh, and the blog as well. You got Christine, Dylan, uh, and uh, uh, Matsuzaka himself who write for it, and some other people as well. So there's some good stuff going on over there. Um, we, there's so many blogs to mention, which I always kick over to you. So we'll give me a second here. Uh, oh yes, I don't need to mention uh, our outgoing. Uh, yeah, just listen to the outro music for our contact information. There's just so much to mention at the end of these shows. I'll go ahead and let you mention the blogs though. Yes. Okay. So uh, as usual. Um we have this is quiet cool We have deadly dolls house dot blogspot dot com. 
And of course, that's Hans and Emily's two respective blogs. Let me uh, let me add. Emily has a very good review of uh, Martyrs over there. It's very interesting. Check it out. Yes, um, Naked Eskimos is. Oh, I forgot it again. <laughs> NakedEskimo.blogspot.com. Ah, uh, yes. Uh, and then I know I'm forgetting one because there's always oh, uh, t- our good friend uh, GTM. You can yes. check out his glass eye on Pop Syndicate. Nice. So that is it. That is all. Yes, we have so much. All right, so uh, until next week. Oh, yeah, let me mention what we're covering next week. Next week we have uh, two very inter- interesting picks. We have uh, uh, a pick from Barb, uh, Three Iron, something she's wanted us to cover for quite some time and was actually kind of on our list anyway, which we will be covering. Uh, which, who direct? Is that Kim Ki-duk? Is that him? That's Kim Ki-duk. Yes, uh, Korean filmmaker. So looking forward to that. I've never seen the film, so I'm very excited. And we are also covering what has to be one of the strangest films I think I've ever seen. Uh, Ruggiero Diodato's uh, The Barbarians with the <laughs> the Barbarian Brothers or the Paul Brothers, David and Peter Paul. <laughs> which I, I, <laughs> I laugh. I, I, I can't even talk about it without laughing. <laughs> the thing is, we always say I don't think we could have picked two more opposite films, but I think to take a Barbarian film with two bodybuilding brothers by Ruggiero Diodato and then a quiet art house Korean cinema uh film it just it does not get any more fucking opposite than that <laughs> yes yes there will be a lot of tough tit talk guys so if you guys love the tough tits trust me it'll be there oh lots of <laughs> tough tits all right so that is our show for this week we hope to see you next week and i'll say adios adios thanks for listening you can find the gentleman at ggtmc.com you can call the gentleman at 206-666-5207 and you can email the gentleman at midnightcinema at gmail.com You better watch yourself. <laughs>